Uh, Danny, sound test. P- people in the chat, please let me know how loud this is because it is a new microphone. And then we'll do a Georgie sound check next. Should I? Sound check? Sound check? Sound check? Still here. Still here. Okay, and this is both of us at the same time. Go ahead, Georgie. Yes. Can you guys hear us? Okay, and both, say it one more time. Can you guys hear us? Okay. Is everything cool? How are you guys doing? So good to be back. Georgie Dinkov, how are you? I'm fine. Thanks for uh, <laughs> finally restarting these. Yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't expect to have it uh, up and running this soon, but I'm so happy to have this kind of mobile uh, setting or m- mobile stream apparatus functional. And I told Georgie this, but I'm actually amazed that this is actually even working. But Because up till yesterday, uh, the video wasn't working showing the display, like the actual uh, web browser wasn't working. And so, uh, yeah, just unbelievable that this is functional. But I wanted to get, well, first, everybody, thank you in the chat. Josh, Sue, Destiny, Thomas, uh, Josh, Steph, the moderator, my buddy, John Flaherty, how are you? Uh, N-U-R-I, Michael, uh, anybody that posts here right now. But, George, I wanted to, uh, everybody has been asking me frequently about your experiments and so I think yeah. we should probably get into that first. Uh, well, one of them is already complete, right? Uh, as I s- send you over email. So the, the first experiment was with Cordinone, and I call it Cordinone Plus because after the, the study is published, I'll release an updated version of Cordinone as an extra option. So the progesterone to DHEA ratio there will be 8 to 1. Um, and through the reason is for, for this ratio, higher ratio, the current one is 3 to 1, and I think that's what Ray has been 
recommending. I think you have a like a formula, not a formula, but like you have a video how to make your own, right? Yeah, it's I like think a the ratio a, there was three to one. Yeah, it's like a Patreon post, and so it's talking about how to mix like a Progest E bottle with powdered DHEA. Yeah, but I think Ray has also been mentioning this to people like three to one, four to one, in in um in order to like treat like skin issues. Mm-hmm, Let's mm-hmm. call him like the you know starts with C and ends with R. Um, so like for topical applications, so he I think he to several people he mentioned three to one, four to one ratio. But um, um, I have some friends who actually did blood tests and it showed that uh, like a higher ratio actually like um basically low uh, increased their testosterone, um and and DHEA more than the lower ratio would do, which is kind of strange because the amount of DHEA was the same. Like I never, I never make a product that would do like more than 50 milligrams for DHEA daily. Mm-hmm. Yet when the ratio of progesterone to DHEA was higher, even the same, the same amount of DHEA, 50 milligrams in each version, uh, the DHEA levels were higher in the cortinone version that was eight to one ratio. So I decided to go with that. And I, I personally feel better on an eight to one ratio. So I decided to do a, like a test, uh, you know, a, a hamster, hamster study, in vivo study, with that version of Corinol. Uh, so the, the study is done by a team at the Bulgarian Academy of Sciences. And before anybody accuses me of being <laughs> of stealing money away from the U.S. and sending it over there, uh, it's I, I, I didn't do it out of patriotism. Actually, the reason I did it is because there there's still people there who work on the old idea of diseases being not old, but like. Now, they're, they're really well forgotten, and Ray is one of the few people that talks about them. There's still people that, that work um, academically on the idea of diseases being caused by, by the change and, and the loss of structure in cellular water. And the person who basically who led the study, um, his specialty is exactly that, basically how, how the loss of structure in water causes specifically cancer. And he has a specific test design where he has like a baseline um, um, you know, he measures the, the energy of the hydrogen bonds in water taken from the blood, from the serum of people who are healthy, then people who have cancer or people with infectious disease, right? And then you do the study with Corinon and, and you compare, you do the same spectral analysis of the water in the blood of the animals taken Corinon, and then, and then you compare how, you know, whether this is closer to a healthy organism or a diseased organism, etc. So it's really interesting. Uh, and then, of course, there are the more traditional measures inside the study, such as, um, you know, how easy it was for the for the hamsters to get implanted with a tumor, depending on whether they got cortisol or not, right? And then for how long they survive, right? Okay. So whether this, they form any metastases. Yeah, that's yeah. what you, you sent me. So I have on the screen right now, like the lethality and then the transplantability. Do you want to describe? Yeah. And I, sure. I, I just perused the, the what you sent me, but they were implanting like a tumor into these animals and then uh, different yeah. variations of the Cordonon product? Yeah. So I'll send you the full report, but just keep it to yourself be- until this thing gets published because they'll like, <laughs> they'll refuse to work with me if this gets, if this becomes public uh, before the journal. Oh, should I not have up. this up on the screen? No, 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 no. <laughs> the, 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 the images are fine because there's nothing there about in the images that, I mean, there is, but it's like, it's not the full report, right? Um, and, and basically, I don't think, the images will not change because that data is already set in stone, right? I mean, the, the groups are or the hamsters are already been utilized. So anyway, so there's the two things. The, the tumor that was studied in this particular study is the most contagious and the most highly lethal tumor known in, in rodents. It's called 
graphene-marine leukemia. And I think I sent you a link so about it. So feel free to post that oh, yeah. link for people that are interested. Yeah. So what this means is that usually when they inject any kind of a, like a mouse or rat or a hamster with this so-called oncovirus, so it's a so it's a leukemia caused by a virus. Whether you believe in that or not, it's a separate purpose, but separate question. But uh, anyways, so this is this is the cancer. It is known that if you inject uh, one of these you know rodents with it, it's it is a hundred percent transplantable. In other words, a hundred percent contagious. Right? Nothing is known currently that can even like slow uh, that that can hinder this 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 infect infectiousness, this transplantability. Right? So the first test was if we give these, so there were two groups, two active groups. One group got coronone on a daily basis for seven days before they got injected with a tumor. And then there was another group which they started getting the coronone at the same time when the tumor, the tumor injections were started as well, the, you know, trying to get them to develop a tumor. So the group that didn't get any coronone, they basically, I think you can see that even from even the first injection. Uh, basically got 30% of the animals already developed tumor just by one from one injection. And then within the next two or three days, all of them, like all the animals in the group already had tumors. The group that got coronal for seven days in advance, right, the, the kind of like a pre-treatment, were strikingly resilient to actually getting a tumor to the point where I had that guy who, who, who is the lead, the author of the study, call me and say like, this, this can't be right. Like, what's going on? What do you have inside this bottle? And I said, why? So he's like, well, because they're supposed to get the tumor. Like, maybe like maybe this interferes with the virus and, and destroys it. And in which case, our study will be will not be legitimate. I was like, well, why not? Well, because we're supposed to show that these animals get the tumor. So I'm like, you just don't understand. That's actually a great result. Like, why can't you guys publish that? He's like, because this is how science works. We, we're told, and, you know, we've been working with this tumor for 20 years. If we don't get it, if the animals in, in this group are not properly getting infected, then the, the review committee, the peer review at the journal will say, this can't be right. It's not legitimate. We've never seen anything like it. So they actually repeated this transplantability four times with four different hamster groups. Same result. Um, so it took one of the one of the hamsters in the in, in the in the group that got pre-treated with corinone. Did not get a tumor until day 19, mm -hmm. to the point where they were actually thinking of killing it and throwing it out because they thought maybe it's just a super Hercules hamster that, that is invincible. <laughs> it cannot be, it cannot, it cannot develop cancer. Eventually it did. But then if you look at the survivability, I mean basically the control group that only got the tumor was they were all dead with by, by the 20th day. And actually, the you know, the mortality is pretty steep, like they start dying out almost immediately. And then the group that, both groups actually, this is the good news. So like, so the groups that got pre-treated with cortisone or just got the cortisone at the same time, they actually lived up to day 60. So that's a 100% increase in survivability, right? And actually, eventually, they got euthanized because the study ran out of time, right? And I said, well, why would you guys end the study? Like, what? let's just keep these hamsters alive like, and see what's, what, what's going on. I mean, we could have had these hamsters... Effect effectively cured. You can't do that apparently because, like, if you start doing this, then it becomes a like a long-term aging disease slash study, mm -hmm. and it violates the protocol. Mm -hmm. So you, I I ran into so many different interesting problems when I try to do my own study, and now I understand just how many of these studies out there either conceal data or manipulated 
or, 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 or are bound by these ridiculous requirements. Because if you want to get the study published, you have to announce your protocol. And this protocol for this study was a 60-day treatment, right? I mean, a 60-day experiment. And if, if anything goes beyond the bounds of that, it's considered unacceptable to be published in the study. So long story short, it, uh, I mean, the, the hamsters in both groups that got corinone survived for, you know, for up to 60 days. And there were still some alive even after that, but they had to be euthanized because we would violate the study protocol. Um, and this, this result, doubling the survival of rodents with this tumor, is another result that's unheard of. So now, now we're going back and forth, actually three-way conversation between me, the, the lead investigator, and the journal editor. So now we're arguing whether this, these, these results are legitimate or not. The editor doesn't believe it. Then the editor is basically saying, like, there's something wrong, right? He's like, I don't suspect fraud because I've known the Bulgarian team for a long time. I don't think they're lying. Mm -hmm. But you may have had something in that corinome, some kind of contamination, <laughs> With, with a chemical that's really, really beneficial or somehow neutralizes the virus. And I said, yeah, it's called progesterone. You know, mm. that's the contamination. Why can't we, I mean, <laughs> even if it was contamination, who gives, who gives a damn? Like, why, why would, why would this matter? He's like, well, son, you haven't been in this long enough as, you know, as long as I have. So you have to understand that that's how these things work. Like you only study published, you have to explain what's inside. So I said, I'm like, look, dude, it's vitamin E, MCT, progesterone, DHEA. He's like, well, then you have to send me some serious references to back up this, this, this absurd result. So I must have sent maybe about 110 different links about progesterone and DHEA, about mm -hmm. their effects on retarding tumor growth, on preventing tumor transplantability, all kinds of tumors. He said, I need as much data as, as you can send me to justify that this study, that the result was actually expected. So long story short, great success, <laughs> as Borat says. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I learned firsthand just how politicized and how difficult it is to do quote-unquote science because if you don't comply with the protocol that is being said, if you rock the boat too much, then basically they're telling you, we're just not going to publish it. It's too much of a risk for us. You can still have your report. You can post it on your blog. You can do whatever you want with it, but it's it's not going to be official data. It will not have the stamp that this was peer-reviewed. And of course, then you immediately open to the accusations of you just doctored this up, right? It's it's not legit. But they it's being accepted, right? So keep your fingers crossed. They say that by the end of the year or, or by the first week of January, we should have an actual legitimate study with Corinon published in the scientific journal. So that's, that's the Corinon study. There's a second one with DHT. Oh, before we get to that one, get, yeah. let's just go through this graph real quickly. The GR3 is the animals that were just uh, in, uh, just tumor, just tumor, and then the green yeah. GR2 is uh, late. Got, got the corinone together with the tumor when it was starting to be to get transplanted. Okay, so they, they didn't have any. They didn't. They didn't have the benefit of pretreatment. Uh, and then okay, red is pretreatment. Right. And as you can see, for transplantability, pretreatment mattered. So the message is progesterone and DHA is strongly protective against the development of cancer. Yeah. Strongly. Right. And then, but even, even after you develop cancer, if you start taking it, then the two groups were about equally effective. If you look, I mean, the group one still did, still did the best. Right. Mm -hmm. That's why I said, like, the, there were, I think, two or three hamsters that were left on day 60, where you basically see the red line touching, like, the, uh, like the, the, the horizontal 
the upper horizontal line, right? Mm-hmm. So, but that's that's the group that had the hamsters euthanized on purpose because they were still alive. And the protocol said, we cannot go beyond this because there's nobody to take care of these ha- hamsters. Everything is being budgeted. This is no longer a cancer study. Um, you know, don't worry. It's already a success. We don't have anything else that, that's, that's shown such results. Long story short, I'm personally convinced that the combination of progesterone and DHEA is highly protective against this specific this specific tumor, which, like I said, it's the most the most highly transplantable and the most highly lethal cancer known in rodents. Um, that's what it's used for. It's basically if you if you think you have a blockbuster chemical that you expect to be really beneficial, then they try to test it on this on this graphene myeloid leukemia virus. Um, just to see if, you know, what is it that you have in this bottle? Well, I was going to ask you why that you specifically chose that one. Okay. Before we get to the next one, let's just quickly, uh, if you're new here, please subscribe. Uh, I'm almost positive. My channel has been like shadow banned. <laughs> like it has been like a ridiculously low level of growth. And also if you search for any of my videos, even if I'm not logged into my account, I'm, I don't even come up with Ray Pete when you type yeah. in. And so I, I'm yeah. pretty sure we've hit a mix of words that are not acceptable. And so, and I'll get to a little bit more on this later. Uh, we might be taking calls towards the end. Uh, let me go through Jordy's stuff here. Okay. Oh, I, I'm moving things to not moving things, but going to try to put as much video content on BitChute. I'm not completely sold on that website, but, uh, it seems like the best alternative at the moment. Um, Georgie's website. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow Georgie on Twitter, and he's quite prolific on there. Uh, the product Georgie is talking about, Cordonon, is. Do you have to go to Labs, Georgie, to get that one? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so Idea Labs, la, uh, Idea Labs, DC.com slash lab. Slash lab, yeah. And, and you can now get that three to one uh, on here. Yeah, it used to be one to one. I moved it to three to one because people are getting better effects. Ray mentioned this ratio. You did the, the, the basically the, the the educational video on how to make it. Uh, but I decided to do the actual cancer study with higher ratio because I mean I looked at the studies with rodents, like the dosages with progesterone were much higher, right? So I thought like if I'm and I'm paying for for this out of out of pocket. This uh-huh. is not. This is not funded by volunteers. This is not free. <laughs> Nothing's free, right? Um, so this is entirely for the benefit of finding out. I mean, first of all, confirming some of these ideas, right? Um, second of all, well, finding out whether it's possible to still do science, right? Uh, without without getting without being told what to do. Uh, and the answer the answer for the first one is yes, it works. The second one is, you know, even when you're paying for your own stuff, you, you very much have to. Uh, I mean, you have to fight for every step in order to get the truth out. You get like the such brutal pushback, um, and especially from the journals. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the 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 science team was initially also hesitant because they thought like, mm, these are steroids. People don't look. I mean, the regulatory authorities don't like steroids. And you know, no matter what you send, these over the counter. You know that they're like approved in all these countries. You can buy it in you know most European countries. Still took about a month of arguing back and forth with these people. Yeah, um, just to get it started. Okay, and then other thing, please like this episode, guys. That really does help. You know, uh, 
And then I do coaching, and you can always uh, grab that through dannyroddy.com slash resources. And I tried to make this page more useful. And so I have uh, some low thyroid symptoms from a Merck manual in 1947. I have useful tests. And so I think like uh, 10% of my emails is just asking what lab tests. If, if you ask Georgie or if you ask me, there, we'll probably suggest different tests. You know, I think you can get really granular with it. But these are just some of the tests that I think are uh, kind of don't break the bank and are useful. And then you can download the book that I wrote in like 2012 and some other content that I put on here. And the one difference from this like season of uh, the show is where I'm going to be siphoning the YouTube uh, super chats. And th- so that's going to actually help me financially. <laughs> and so it seems hard to believe, but like thousands of dollars were invested in th- this mobile live stream. And so I would like to uh, return uh, or get those super chats back to Ray. But to be honest, uh, I, I could really use them right now. So I, I sincerely appreciate that guys. Being uh, there. I mean, I, I completely understand. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think that was, Oh no, go to the, the other study, Georgie. Oh yeah. I mean, the second study is, which I'm hoping is going to be the, the more blockbuster one. And by the way, people have been accusing me like, oh, you're doing these studies because you're going to be selling more products. I'm like, okay, let's say the first one made me like that, right? But the second one is actually purely out of desire to rock the boat or at the very least expose, expose the fraud. Because the second one is with dihydrotestosterone trying to treat prostate cancer simply by giving dihydrotestosterone. I make no money out of this. I cannot sell dihydrotestosterone. I don't have stock options in companies <laughs> that sell the hydrotestosterone. If anything, the only thing that can come out of this study is controversy and potentially trouble for me. So, I mean, if anybody can come up with a reason of how this benefits me financially and, you know, behind the scenes, feel free to speak up. But, you know, I'm hoping that once the study come out, we'll be able to uh, start, you know, at least, you know, pulling down that wall in endocrinology, which is one of the main pillars is bashing the androgens, right? Especially the strong androgens, the things that make men what men are. Um, and, you know, basically the, this, this whole therapy of giving men estrogen, castrating them chemically or physically or whatnot, it's been going on for, for almost 100 years. So I'm hoping that uh, with this study, we can take the first step towards dismantling this idiotism. Okay. And this, this study isn't as far, as, uh, far along as the progesterone. Right. DHA. So it, the second study is with mice, this uh-huh. one with the prostate cancer. And the mice were injected with the tumor last week. So the way the study works is they wait until the mice start developing metastasis. Mm-hmm. Unlike cortinone, the cortinone study, basically like as soon as they their, their blood test that they do for the cortinone study when they can confirm when there's, when the basically the tumor has taken hold, right? But they don't wait for the metastasis. This study actually, they inject the tumor, they transplant the tumor, will be with human cells too. So the cortinone study is with a murine in other words, like a virus that only causes this leukemia in rodents, right? So it, it will be open to attack under the, the guise of, okay, cortinone works for a marine leukemia that no human will ever get, right? So that's that will be one attack. I mean, you can, can already see it coming. But the second one, the study with prostate cancer is with human cells. So it's mm-hmm. basically the record relevant to humans. In fact, this is the most common. So the first study is with, uh, I'll do two of them if, if I get my way. So the first one will be with androgen-sensitive prostate cancer, which is what most men initially get, right? Mm-hmm. And if it works fine, 
Then the second study will be with a type of prostate cancer cell that's considered castration resistant. I love that term. Castration resistant <laughs> and, and hormonally insensitive. And I already know through in vitro studies that I've done, I've paid a lab to do, that I, I already know that there is no such thing as a uh, androgen insensitive or castration resistant mm-hmm. prostate cancer line. I tested the all eight major cell types currently in use. So mm-hmm. I already know, kind of know where this is going, right? But what this is this is what I'm trying to do. Step one, show that DHT monotherapy on its own is actually therapeutic. And it, we kind of already know this result from because of the Swedish study, which I uh, posted on that blog post. Mm-hmm. Now, if that works, second step was would be DHT monotherapy for prostate for castration resistant prostate cancer again human cells mm-hmm. now if that works the last thing that that the endocrinologist can can come up with and i've been talking to some of them is well dht gets metabolized into something called androstane diol and mm-hmm. that thing is can activate estrogen receptor beta uh-huh. so so in order to shut that criticism down the last arm of the study would be administer dht with an inhibitor of the enzyme that converts DHT into that, you know, ostensibly estrogenic metabolite. So in other words, it will be only DHT in the blood and nothing else, or at least very close to it. Now, once that happens, I mean, you can turn and twist and and do what, I don't know what you're going to be able to come up with because estrogen levels in the animals being given these doses of DHT that we're going to be using uh, drops down to being undetectable. Pretty much every other hormone except DHT is, is down to nil, right? So it'll be very hard to come up with an explanation that DHT itself is not the therapeutic agent. I just don't know what else what else they'll be able to come up with. Maybe they'll say it's the vitamin E <laughs> because that DHT, the, the, the second study is also with DHT dissolved in vitamin E. Uh, something you had said earlier, the androstenendione, DHT is metabolized into that, wasn't it? Uh, testosterone? No, it's basically androstein diol. So oh, there's andro- okay. androstein, yeah. androstein diol and androstein diol. So they're unsaturated. So testosterone has one double bond, right? It's got a little one, almost like a monounsaturated fat, right? Mm-hmm. And actually, this, this is not a coincidence. They actually, their their effects are kind of like similar. So things that have more than one double bond start becoming highly estrogenic. Look at estradiol, three double bonds, right? Mm-hmm. Then things that have less than that which is testosterone, progesterone, you know, DHEA, they're not themselves estrogenic, right? Mm-hmm. And things that have no double bonds actually are usually potently anti-estrogenic. Mm-hmm. So DHT metabolizes into androstane diol with mm-hmm. A, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you have A, means it's a fully saturated steroid. Mm-hmm. And testosterone metabolizes into androstene diol, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. an E, right? Yeah. So, so there's a one double bond, right? So... So this is actually, if you look at this is this has always been, um, if you look at some of the other studies about DHT, about mm-hmm. its you know effects on uh, depression, positive right, mm-hmm. effects on cognitive function. There are animal studies with DHT about Alzheimer's. All of the rationale behind the explanation behind the benefit in the section of the study called discussion, right, because they all have to explain their results, right. So far, has always been. It's probably because DHT metabolizes into an estrogenic metabolite. That's got to be. It. it has to be. It. So I'm like, okay, I will, I will take that chair. I mean, I will pull that chair from underneath all of you by administering a, a you know, an inhibitor um, that basically makes sure that DHT stays as DHT. The only thing that can happen when you when we administer this inhibitor is DHT stays, it does its job, 
and then gets glucuronidated mm-hmm. and gets excreted. That's it. No metabolism into anything else. Uh, and it really, it cannot really go into anything else if you inhibit that, that enzyme. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. So we'll see. So yeah, that's, those are the two experiments. One complete, one, one in progress. And the second one will be purely for the benefit of, I don't know, for humanity. <laughs> so what, what is the ETA of actually having like a, a paper or being able to publicly release things? The second one or the first one? Uh, both. So the first one, I already have the report. I'll send you the report. Mm-hmm. There are actually two reports associated with that. I already have a copy of the first one. Feel free to read it, Chris. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I mean, basically, it talks about the structure of water and what Cordinone did and didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, talk, they have like a pictures of all the hamsters. They biopsy them. You can visibly see that the group that didn't get Cordinone got these nasty metastatic nodules all uh-huh. over them, right? Uh-huh. And then the groups that, that had Cordinone, even the ones that died, they were actually like, they, they were in pretty, pretty decent health. And I'm starting to suspect they maybe killed him a little earlier. It wasn't really the, the tumor. Something happened there. Maybe the Bulgarians went out of food. So <laughs> I have to call them and see what happens. But that report is, one of them is done. I'll send it to you. Mm-hmm. And the study, the actual publication, um, should be done by the end of this month because that's the plan. It's already been accepted by a journal. Um, or the very, you know, the latest, the first week of January. But I, I'm, I'm hoping for the end of the month because they have to meet a certain deadline. Because I think the study was announced as you know that it will be a 2019 study, in which case you have to have some kind of a you know at least like a, an abstract on the web on the journal website it has to be like this study will come out later, but you know here is here are the findings, right? And then the second study is in progress, um, but here's the problem. So that lab that I found, mm-hmm. they actually their the headquarters in the, is in the states, but mm-hmm. the actual experiment is being done in, in Taiwan. Um, they warned me from the very beginning because they're not stupid. They said, we will not publish this. We don't care what the results are. <laughs> we, we just don't give a damn about the results. But, you know, if things come out the way you say, um, you can kind of use our name, but we'll prefer if you don't. <laughs> uh, but they, they have to send me a report, right? And then even if I can't publish it, I will put it on the forum. I'll put it on the website. I'll send it to you. Feel free to send it to Ray. Again, because it will come directly from the lab, right? And it will be in a PDF format. And I'm, it's out of my hands. So I'm, I can't really affect that study. I mean, basically, they have to comply. Because this is done through an American company, um, there, there is a, a third party which makes sure that I don't interfere with the study. Same thing happened with the Bulgarian one. So aside from paying for it, which admittedly is a conflict of interest, right? Um, but again, you can argue that I have a financial interest for the first study to come out the way I wanted to, right? Because maybe it will, it will help the sales. But again, I, there's no financial conflict of interest, in my opinion, on the second one, because yes, I paid for it, but I, I there's nothing material that I gained from the study if it comes out with a positive result. Well, what you said reminded me of uh, that older book that Ray mentioned, Cold War and Biology by Carl C. Lindegren. And he says, a scientific controversy is the lifeblood of science. Without controversy or when controversy is suppressed, science languages into sterile doctrine, uh, which yeah. may not be questioned. Yeah, I think that's pr- probably true about every aspect of life. Uh, what was that What was that William Blake quote? Opposition is true friendship, but yeah. it shouldn't turn into a negation, right? Because then it becomes – so you have to be careful because sometimes people will – and I've seen this in politics and science. They will actually – throw negation at you and say, oh, we're just doing constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. No, they're actually trying to, sh- to shut things down 
by basically like undermining the idea or attacking the character of the person doing it, right? So they'll resort to all kinds of tactics. So yes, blind acceptance of results is 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 probably never a good thing, right? But also, you know, negation could be even more nefarious because it, it, it undermines like the character of the person doing it and like the reputation and and their social network really because people are like, oh, you know, maybe I should have hung out with Georgia. This guy is doing some really weird things, you know, uh, potentially <laughs> potentially exposing. Uh, I don't know how many tens of thousands of endocrinologists as frosters or, uh, well, I don't know. I, I don't know what you what, what would you call these doctors. If it turns out DHT truly, let's say cures for for lack of a better They're word, pharma, cures pharma prostate cancer. Yeah, but it goes beyond <laughs> that. Now, now some people can go out there and argue that these people mutilated tens of millions of men over the last fifty to hundred years, and then they, you know, there's a concept of should have known, which Ray mentioned in one of his articles. You can't say I was oh we were stupid like that's that's how things were you know that's how science works sometimes we do the, we do the wrong things this isn't simply a matter of doing the wrong things you actually did the wrong thing <laughs> there's only one in this case and you picked it right and you, you if you if you administered water to these men they would have been less bad than giving them estrogen yet that's exactly what you guys did. Well, that's always the common retort. It's like, well, we just really don't know, and it's just by accident. But then when you go through the history, you, you it's like there's too much error to just be accident. You know, it's uh, and, and in this case, it's like from all of the bad things that, that, that actually not the bad things. In this case, it's probably only one bad thing, right? If this is a hormonal cancer, given it precisely the hormone that will actually make it grow, and that's that's like treating breast cancer with estrogen. It will be Pretty much the equivalent because the equivalent, uh, the 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 equivalent endo, uh, endocrinological cancer in males to breast cancer is prostate cancer, mm. right? I mean, there's also breast cancer in males, but it's pretty rare. But the equivalent to to the breast cancer in women in males is arguably it is prostate cancer. So it's now at this point is known. You do not give a woman with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. You do not give her estrogen or she or her relatives will sue you for attempted murder, right? Well, the same thing may very well be true about prostate cancer. We'll see. Uh, and just, I don't want to get into politics, really, but like the that quote that Ray said, Jawhead, I think, in 2018, he said, the reason I talk more about biology than politics is that the various radical movements generally have inflexibilities that keep them apart. And and, and you, you had, I just thought of that with things you had said earlier, but it's like separating everybody into different groups and there's no solidarity between individuals, you know, and yeah. actually CIA has a special project for doing that. So they, they send the agent provocateur. Is that what it's called? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, strategy so of they tension. undermine the Black Panther Party the same way. So they created immediately co-intel uh, like a strife. Yeah. Co-intel pro. Exactly. So they infiltrated the Black Panther Party. Arguably, they were violent. Right. I mean, they they weren't exactly like a like a like a good organization, but. There was unity from the very beginning, and then that's what the CIA did and the FBI. They sent people there to basically get, like, make the leaders start fighting with each other and break into factions. And that's essentially what did in what did the Black Panther Party in? Um, not party, but the group or whatever they call the Black Panthers. Yeah, I have a uh, video that the leaders basically said we're no longer on the same page. We don't. We no longer have the same goals or at least the same understanding of what needs to be done. So. These people started struggling for leadership, right? Because in order for an organization to survive, it needs supporters. It needs members. Yeah. And then if you have five leaders who can't stand each other anymore, 
then then if the, if this, if this thing falls apart and breaks apart, then each of these leaders will try to draw as many people as possible to their cause, right? But from the outside, that has the effect of telling people something isn't right about this organization. Like, who am I supposed to listen to, right? They were so united, they had such a good message, and now they're starting to fight with each other, which means many people will think, like, maybe they're not so certain about their message, you know, the underlying message that they were trying to initially push on us. That's, that's, the government is very good at undermining organizations techniques like that. I said I didn't want to get into politics and then I just immediately go into politics. <laughs> the one, one other thing is, uh, well, Operation Gladio, the CIA strategy of tension. Oh, yeah. And this is, I'm like, oh, I'm, uh, can you guys hear this? Oh, can you hear this? I don't think you can hear this, Georgie. But anyways, this is, this is like an operative saying that you were supposed to attack the civilians, women, and children. Um, you go outside the political arena for one of the sample reasons. Anyways, he's he's saying that it was government sanctioned or CIA sanctioned terror, and right. yeah, to create like chaos and to stoke uh, ill will towards different groups by pretending to be them. And didn't Ray say in one of Karen's interviews with him, um, what was the Occupy Wall Street thing? I think they were doing the same thing to that to make sure that it didn't get off the ground. And Ray even said they had snipers <laughs> like ready I, to pull. I the sent trigger. you the link. Oh, so yeah. the Occupy Wall Street in Texas, basically. Uh -huh. So the American Civil Liberties Union sent a Freedom of Information Act request, right? Mm -hmm. So there was an article in the Texas Tribune. I don't know what it is, but I sent it to you. I can send it again. And what happened is that basically they got back these heavily redacted documents. They had a language in there, which, of course, the government said, you know, they refused to comment. But the, the politicized media tried to spin this as if some kind of like a, like a counter organization to uh, Occupy Wall Street was trying to like take out the leaders with snipers. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. The language used that wasn't redacted said, like, the leaders would be taken out if deemed necessary. <laughs> FBI doesn't refer to, like, domestic, private terrorist organizations un with such terminology. This is usually reserved for law enforcement, right? And here's the thing. If there was such a conspiracy by private, pe by private persons to take out the Occupy Wall Street uh, leaders, why weren't there any arrests? Why wasn't there any investigation? Can you imagine the conspiracy that, that this would take to basically like some kind of, let's say, I don't know, like some fascist organization by, you know, by people armed to the teeth um, and basically like, lie, you know, conspiring how to how to kill the leaders of a political organizations. You don't think the ABA would be interested in that? Where's the investigation on this? Where are the arrests? But I think it's pretty obvious. When you use... <laughs> If deemed, if deemed necessary, these people were ready to be taken out by snipers. I mean, you can make your own guess. Then, then okay, why redacted that, right? Isn't it, you know, if, if it was a credible threat, the FBI should have arrested somebody. I've never heard of anybody being arrested or investigated in regards to trying to take out the leaders of Occupy Wall Street by a sniper rifle. So this leaves only one option. I mean, given the language and given that nobody was investigated, nothing was publicized. It was an agency, potentially the FBI itself. I mean, I don't know what other agency has the authority to actually do domestic um, lethal action other than the uh, police and FBI. CA is not supposed to do that, but who knows? <laughs> Under the scenes, anything's possible. Okay. Uh, we could probably talk about this all day. Uh, okay. what do, are, are there any articles on your site that you would like to address first. I would, I like the millennials 
Oh yeah, yeah. one. Yeah, that's the. That, as soon as I posted it, it already like generated so much controversy and emails and okay, well, let, people are like forwarding let's, it. Let's start with that one. So that study basically shows that fifty percent of millennials and at least seventy five percent of Gen Generation Z have have left at least one job that they've had so far, right? And Keep in mind, many of them didn't even have jobs, right? That's the whole argument has been so far is that these people are unemployed, they're unemployable, the economy sucks, these people are living with their parents, right? So you can safely assume, especially Gen Z, I mean, they're they're not even of age yet. They're, mm-hmm. they're most of these people are not even in college. Mm-hmm. So this basically means that majority of these people left their jobs because of mental illness, right? And here, here's the cool part. Oh, it's not cool, but like here, here's the here's the 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 million dollar uh Discovery. Mental illness, according to at least mainstream media, the way it's presented, is not an episodic event. If you're mm-hmm. mentally ill, according to most psychiatrists, you're mentally ill and you have to be treated, usually for life, right? Because it's not cure, but you have to be on some kind of a drug for life. It doesn't matter if it's bipolar disorder, doesn't matter if it's unipolar disorder, doesn't matter if it's schizophrenia. Find me one mental illness, which you go to the doctor, they inject you with something or they give you some pills and they say, you're done, you're cured. Go home, you're free, right? Doesn't work like that. So another way to look at this is that 50% of millennials and 75% of Gen Zs have mental illness. In other words, they're mentally ill. And this is like this is again an extension of this of this theme, which you've seen in my posts over the last two years, is that the health of the youngest, the young and now the youngest, there wasn't much data on Gen Z before the study came out. It was all about the millennials. How they're like so in such a poor health. There's another study which is further down, uh, like the line in the blog, which talks about the millennials will likely die die earlier than Gen X due to poor health, right? Mm -hmm. So it's always been about the millennials and how they're sicker, they're poorer, you know, it's it's all about them. But the, the hope, the message was that, well, hopefully the trend will reverse, at least the the politicians have been saying, like. Well, there are younger people coming behind, you know, even if that's true, even the millennials are really like sick and, and and decrepit, like don't worry, like we have they will be replaced. There's younger people and healthy people coming coming after them. Well, now the first piece of evidence comes out, and then if you believe that there's no such thing as a localized disease, but everything's systemic, the fact that 75% of Gen Z is mentally ill, mm-hmm. think about what that means for the, for that generation. Um, so yeah, things are I'm not looking good health-wise. It doesn't matter which generation you're in. But it's almost like a it's like a, it's like a linear declining curve from the greatest generation, then the silent generation, then the boomers, then Gen X, then millennials, then Gen Z. All of these people, if you look at their health records at the at, at the age specific rate of specific of certain diseases, especially cancer and and neurodegenerative diseases. You'll see that 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 basically the the health of people has de- dramatically declined over the last hundred years. Not surprising, you know. I'm sure you remember. Like I remember the. I'm not saying my generation. I'm a millennial. I'm not saying it's good or anything. But like I remember the advent of like I worked at Apple when the the iPhone came out, and so I went like the morning of, and we pasted the walls and stuff and. It's just like you can re- remember a time when there was no cell phone and things. And yeah, yeah. after that, and it just seems like that was a pivotal moment. And, and I'm in Thailand right now in Bangkok, and I'll take the the train and every single person has their phone out. And, you know, I know that's not the worst thing ever. Like the PUFA, uh, accumulation of PUFA might be worse, you know, but 
I, I can't even imagine like the EMF level on the train with like a hundred people in a car all having their cell phones out. And Keep so, in mind the train am- amplifies it because yeah. it is because of its construction material. You're basically having your ba- your fried. Mm-hmm. You're being fried while you're inside. Well, it's, it's like a microwave, but from the inside. Yeah. Well, people might think I'm. Uh, uh, I <laughs> be willing to bet I, I I feel a little bit dizzy on those trains, like whenever I get on. And so I, I really do think it might be because of the EMF. And so, and again, I'm coming from Mexico, which I think had like a, not a great EMF situation, but I'm sure it's like nothing compared to a, a city. But anyways, it's not a stretch to think that the next generations are less healthy. But it ne- it was, this message was never so striking, right? That these two last studies that the gen millennials will actually die earlier mm-hmm. than, than an older generation. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. pretty stark, right? Yeah. And now we have like, at the very least, half, if not the majority of the younger people are mentally ill. Yeah. So how is this, how is this world supposed to move forward if, these, if, if most young people are mentally ill? I mean, just on a pure progress basis, you expect them to drive these things forward, right? And then, of, then also on an economic basis, keep in mind that the health system is, is no matter whether it's insurance or it's the Medicare or Medicaid or whatnot, it's always predicated on the assumption that it's the older people that are sicker and then the youngers will be healthier, they'll be working more, they'll be paying taxes, they will not be using the resources of the system as much as the older ones would, right? Because otherwise, it's like a run on the banks. If everybody runs to the bank at the same time, no bank can survive that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this is the same thing. So now all of these generations simultaneously will start drawing resources from the system. No system can survive that. This is We're looking at, there's an article uh, by an economist. It was called the uh, war against everybody, everybody against everybody, so, something along those lines. And he said it for a different reason. He thought that the financial situation of people is declining so much that at some point the generations will turn on each other for financial reasons. Mm-hmm. But I think the health situation will probably is, is what will precipitate this first. It's just that the younger people will be like, I can't even bring myself out of bed to go to work, let alone have to work more than my parents did, pay more in taxes, and get my benefits cut. How how do you how, how is this supposed to happen? I mean, you look at that and you immediately realize why why the suicide rate is skyrocketing. Like why everybody's like, well, why is, why are young people so desperate and 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 in basically with with no sense of purpose and they don't like they don't enjoy life anymore. Well, though maybe they see what's coming for them, and it's it's hard to not get depressed on that because what's the solution, right? I mean, the only solution at this point, if you're because of all this, despite all this talk about reforming the system, mm-hmm. the system is designed to do that. So there's only one conclusion: you have to tear it down, or alternatively, the people who are unfortunate enough to be in a in a specific social status, let's call it, let's not call it a class warfare, right? But if you're unfortunate enough to be below certain status in society, you're essentially done, you're done, you're finished. You, there's no point. I mean, you you will be a slave your whole life. And that's what that's what these people see and they start they doing drugs, you know, drinking too much, or like, or you know, just just giving up, you know. That's that's precisely what the study said. Young people are lost. Well, you're making a mistake. You just have to look forward to the next Star Wars movie, and then you'll be okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and buy my and, and, and exactly, and, and buy my like my new shiny device, next one that will be allow me to stream the latest and greatest on Netflix. <laughs> Man, Bertrand I'll... Russell actually consulted the rich how to create a system like that, 
to where everybody is miserable, but nobody dares to say this publicly or even think it about to themselves mm -hmm. because they're like, that, that's all they've seen, right? In order for you to know that something isn't good, you have, it's almost like, what was that quote from William Blake? You never know what's enough until you know what's more than enough, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. the same thing applies to happiness. You never know whether you're happy or happy until you've seen the other side or at least more than or less than what you currently have. So in order for you to understand you're miserable, you have to see somebody who is less miserable or you become less miserable to realize how bad things work. But the situation is pretty, it's pretty uniform for everybody except the very rich, the 1%. Well, so, I, well, I know we talked about this before, but like I've definitely been guilty of being in like a funk for a long time, you know, and then you'll do something and you'll snap out of it and you'll be like, oh my God, I can't believe it's like hard to perceive when your something is wrong, you know? And so yeah, but they feel it, right? It's hard to, so let's say if you're sitting at home, you haven't gone to work in two weeks, you're doing drugs, right? <laughs> it's hard. To, I mean, you have to be pretty damn delusional. To convince yourself that this is that's life is peachy, that's how it's supposed to be going. Nothing's wrong, right? The very least, your parents will probably disown it and be like, "Get out of my house, you, you dumb bum! I'm not <laughs> supporting you anymore." I, I have friends who got that message uh, in pretty, you know, pretty uncertain, <laughs> uh, 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 pretty certain terms. Basically, they were told you have you have one week to find a new place because we're not financing you anymore. Guys, is my audio okay? Do I need to be like a little bit louder? I'm worried about listening to this afterwards and realizing I'm too quiet. So please let me know. Um, I can hear you. I think you you hear slightly differently, I think, than YouTube hears okay. me. Uh, guys, thank you so much for the super chats. Seriously, the, that really, really helps me. So thank you guys so much. And that helps me continue to do this show, you know, and, and that's amazing. Thank you guys for liking the episode. And if you haven't done that, please like the episode. Uh, I sincerely appreciate it. And then subscribe if you have not subscribed already. Um, I'm going to still turn up because I think my volume is a little bit low. Testing. Okay. Um, okay. The one that I liked was the hypoxia nutrient deficiency rapidly rewires cells for cancer metabolism. And the reason I wanted to mention this one was just I just feel like it's at the heart of, of just the bioenergetic concept. And so I thought you really... Master, masterfully. This is like repeating Warburg, what Warburg said 80 years ago. He said that if the cell, if you interfere with the with, with the presence or function of oxygen in a cell, then the cell starts to disintegrate its oxidative phosphorylated machinery mm -hmm. because it's it's bulky, it takes energy to maintain it, right? So the cell says, I don't need this anymore. So I'm gonna go back to a much more primitive, cheaper to maintain state of life which is the proliferation and excessive glycolysis. Can I interrupt you? Can I just read this Albert St. Georgie quote? It's the chemical machinery of biological oxidation is rather bulky one. It involves solid state and structure. Uh, when the cell divides, it has to rearrange its whole interior, which demands mobility. To achieve this, the cell has to dispense with its bulky oxidative machinery, dismount it, and revert to a simple and older anaerobic energy production. That's actually, you, you're correcting me. It wasn't Warburg. It was Albert St. Georgi. That's precisely the uh, oh, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so anyways, the, the, like, I, I mean, because we're always talking, like, uh, people are always asking questions about, like, uh, because right now, low carb and carnivore diets and, and ketogenic are, are very popular. But again, we're, we're putting out an alternative message, obviously, based on Ray and Albert St. Georgi and, and similar people talking about how, uh, the goals are to allow for the consumption of oxygen and, and oxidation of sugar 
and that dampening the stress systems that rise into old age that cause the degenerative effects of aging. And so using oxygen is just this cornerstone of that idea. Yeah, and, and it, it's even on a, on a more simple basic level is you have to forget about the idea that genes cause cancer. This, mm-hmm. is, this is so dumb, so utterly fraudulent. At this point, there is zero evidence for any of that, right? And even like the mainstream journals, the bastions of the corrupt science came out with that. I think they sent you the study that generated controversy on Reddit. They said the Warwick effect drives oncogenesis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like in some of the comments underneath were like, yeah, for a hundred years, there's been honest debate whether genetic genetic mutations (laughs) precede the cancer or it's the other way around. Well, it looks like uh, the, you know, the the latter, the group can do a victory lap because, you know, that's that. That's how it seems to be. Well, well, here's the. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like a pretty dumb idea to get be born like with a certain preset features that are so set in stone that no matter what you do, right? No matter what you do, it doesn't matter whether it's disease or health or longevity. I mean, nature just doesn't work that way for anybody who cares to look out and and kind of like observe the the real world. Um, and, you know, I mean, you said like this, these are raise ideas. They're not raise ideas, right? They're actually, it goes back to even beyond that book the called Cold War in Biology. There's always been, like, it goes back to Aristotle and Plato at the very least, perhaps even earlier. So you have, there are two ways to go about this world. You either believe that what's in front of you is primal, right? A primary matter, whatever you want to call it. And then everything stems from it and your in, continuous interaction with the world and your choices determine your fate. That, actually, that is actually is a quote from Aristotle. Or you believe in informa- the primacy of information, which is largely driven by randomness and chance. So you pick up, I guess, pick up, pick up your side, right? I mean, but, you know, look, the world picked the side of Plato and, and had it for at least 100 years. I'm talking about modern medicine. Nothing has come out of it. Nothing. And I'm not... I'm not doing this just because I'm on. I belong to the other side. I want people to be healthy, and I want to hear that people are cured of diseases. How many people do you know that are cured of diabetes? How many people do you know that have, that have been cured of cardiovascular disease? We don't even we don't even hear about cures anymore. It's all about management, right? And now it's like and prevention, right? But the, the the rates continue to skyrocket. So no matter what that side has done, may, maybe they don't understand Plato very well. Maybe they implemented Plato wrongly, right? But the reality is things are getting worse. So uh, a reasonable person, no matter whether you like Aristotle or not, no matter whether you believe in metabolics or not, it has to try something else. And I think we're seeing some of the political process you're seeing in, in life in the United States and all over the world, a reflection of people saying, enough, no matter what you tell me, I don't believe it. You know, maybe this time you're right, which is the irony of it, right? I think Ray has an article about FDA actually trying to do some good things, but because people are so fed up and don't believe in the system anymore, they'll reject even that. So anyway, so yeah, the ideas are really like, go back to, you know, the world is primary and we're secondary and interacting with the world controls our health, or you believe in some kind of a God-given genetic superiority or inferiority that, and, and, and your interaction with this world uh, has, no, has no impact on it. Then the question is, why are you alive? This might be too much to, to, to mention, but the Vlad Ver, Vladimir Vernadsky quote, uh, and he says, living matter gives the biosphere. It's an extraordinary character, unique in the universe, 
Cosmic energy determines the pressure of life that can be regarded as the transmission of solar energy to the Earth Earth's surface. Activated by radiation, the matter of the biosphere collects and redistributes solar energy and converts it ultimately into free energy capable of doing work on Earth. A, char- uh, a new character is imparted uh, to the planet by this powerful cosmic force. The radiation that pour upon the Earth causes the biosphere to take the properties unknown to lifeless planetary surfaces and thus transforms the face of the Earth. Uh, in its life, in its, uh, its death and the decomposition, an organism circulates its atoms through the biosphere over and over again. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that's what I thought of when you were talking, like the the wholeness of everything. And and again, I didn't mean to say these are Ray pizza ideas. We're only talking about Ray, but obviously he's the one that initiated me into these. uh, The Aristotle finished with choice and not chance determines your destiny. Uh, If you believe that it's, if if you believe that it's chance, then again, my question is what are you doing on this planet? It's like, you can basically choose. This this leads to nihilism. What didn't may when ho, that like has like a there's like an article about neo darwinism and said one of the most pernicious aspects of it like if you believe in genetics so much is that completely removes any need for you to do anything right you can you can randomly start running on the street jump in front of a car you know like ruin I don't know like go into a nuclear reactor none of that really matters if you believe that everything is being preset you just just the idea of this should give I think for most sane people tells them that this can't be right. Like it cannot be preset to that level, right? So it's so some indication which 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 part of the ideas is probably more on the on the correct path. Uh, well, uh, Ray talked to Patrick Timpone, and one of the questions was about uh, determinism, and Ray was mm-hmm. like, uh, "I think that could take a while." <laughs> and then he he talked really intelligently about it. This was actually the Vernadsky quote I was I was thinking of. It's creatures on Earth are. Are the fruit of extended complex processes and are an essential part of a harmonious cosmic mechanism. And uh, that's what I was actually trying to get at. Uh, okay. Uh, anything else on that, Georgie? I mean, I have, while you were gone, I have must have like 50 <laughs> different posts. Like, uh, feel free. Um, there's one that came out recently about aspirin being both eff- being safe and effective for both preventing and treating migraine. Yeah. Migraine is, is such a pervasive condition. I think like some estimates saying that about a quarter of the world's population has migraines. Um, you know, and by migraine, they define like um, uh, either you have chronic migraines or like even like an acute attack at least once a month. So more than a quarter of the world can now benefit from aspirin. And if you open that thread, uh, like basically, I like that quote from the actual study author because he, he himself says, why hasn't the world heard about aspirin if, if, if it's such a wonder drug? Well, guess what? We only want to hear about expensive, toxic, patented. I don't know what else he said, like basically that he's kind of blaming the, the public too. He's saying, you guys, something's wrong with your brains if we have all this evidence about this cheap, safe, over-the-counter drug and you still care only about this expensive, commercialized, marketed crap. Mm-hmm. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, sorry. I thought this. Yeah, did you open it? Yeah. Uh, no, I was actually going to pull up a quote by Ray saying, uh, well, somebody mentioned in the chat about, of course, when you mention aspirin, the first thing everybody talks about is bleeding. And then Ray had a quote of like just saying, yeah, people under stress are generally ble- bleeding in their intestine anyways. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I will add to that is that there were two studies posted. I, I posted about them in the form of maybe like three or even four, four years ago. Two large studies were actually tried to look at the risk, actually three of them. One study, there was a meta study, looked at all of the other studies that, that studied aspirin and bleeding, came back and said, there is zero substantial evidence that, that aspirin can cause a bleeding of the sort that, that should worry you, right? Like maybe you'll get a nosebleed, something like that, right? And then the other two studies were specific about whether aspirin increases bleeding in the brain or in the gastrointestinal tract. You go to any doctor and ask about aspirin, these are the two things that will scare you with. They'll say, you take this, you, you'll get a hemorrhaging stroke and or you'll bleed to death in your intestines. Yet aspirin protected from dying from these very conditions. And if that wasn't enough, another study came recently out showing that aspirin actually prevents the rupturing of aneurysms in the brain, mm. which are almost universally fatal. Not only that, but it actually treats the aneurysm and starts and shrinks it. So it can potentially even cure it. Just the study wasn't long enough to see if it would truly fully cure it, but it was. It started to shrink it. So you have no evidence to say that taking aspirin is a bad idea. All the evidence comes from statistically manipulated data based on meta studies, right? Mm -hmm. Which means nobody actually went out there and did an intervention study with aspirin. The ones that did, like the GI bleeding study and the brain bleeding study, they found the exact opposite, that mm -hmm. aspirin is actually protective. Uh, the other article I have pulled up is uh, serotonin causes, uh, how do you say that? Anhedonia and mental illness in general? Anhedonia, yes. Anhedonia. So the, the opposite of pleasure. <laughs> this kind of ties in with the poor health of the, of the um, Zoomers. Yeah, I mean, experiencing pleasure from life is actually part of your higher cognitive function. Mm -hmm. Same thing with sex, mm -hmm. which is, of course, pleasure and sex are very tightly related. Most people would agree with that. Um, yeah, and, but also creativity. Uh, basically, the, the outward-orientedness of the organism. In other words, you welcome the world, you like its novelty, you like its unpredictability, it excites you, right? So serotonin shuts all of this down. And uh, basically, they're saying that this is a, a feature. I mean, it's known that anhedonia is a, uh, is a feature. It's one of the signs and the most pernicious uh, symptoms of depression. It's mm -hmm. really hard to treat. They're saying it's really hard to treat. Well, no wonder if you give people serotonergic drugs, right? <laughs> you may potentially like alleviate their depression because most of these serotonergic drugs, as we talked about, they find, they turn out to be partial serotonin antagonists. They still heavily serotonergic, but they block one of the serotonin receptors and they also increase allopregnanolone synthesis in the brain, right? So they may alleviate, alleviate your depression, but because they're so heavily serotonergic, they, so, and this is actually pretty common, like most people on SSRI drugs, they say, yeah, I feel fine, but I'm, I'm kind of, it's kind of like, it's kind of bland, right? Life is just like one big blah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so far, the doctors are saying we have no treatment for that. Turn out, turns out it's serotonin that's involved, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there are actually older studies, if you look at them, that, that showing that things like LSD, bromocryptine, some other uh, serotonin antagonists and or dopamine agonists actually are capable of pretty quickly reversing enchidonia. So the evidence, the cumulative, the cumulative evidence is pretty, pretty clear. Serotonin is, is not your friend, at, at least when it comes to mental health. It's, it's about as bad for your brain as, as you can actually get endogenously. You know, short of, you know, irradiating your brain with a CT scan or doing something like that, like something truly poisonous and systemically bad, you know, that's, 
Serotonin and cortisol are probably the most toxic for the brain, uh, more than even estrogen. Uh, estrogen is tends to focus on other organs more, but these two, cortisol and serotonin, universally uh, catabolic, truly destructive for the brain. <clears throat> so Ray calls LSD a serot- uh, what He has a specific word for it, like a serotonin antagonist. Uh, it, it's an approximate. approximate. Yeah. I'm not yeah. saying this to tell people to go take LSD, but just to your point, this is Cary Grant, and he was like a very wealthy actor, you know? And when he did LSD therapy, he said, all my life, I've been searching for peace of mind. I've explored yoga and hypnotism and made several attempts at mysticism. Nothing really seemed to give me what I wanted until this treatment. I have been born again. I have been through a psychiatric experience, which has completely changed me. I was horrendous. I had to face things about myself, which I had never admitted, which I didn't know were there. Now that I have hurt every woman I ever loved, an utter fake, a self-opinionated bore, all a all a know all who knew very little. I found uh, I was hiding behind all kinds of defenses, hypocrisies, and vanities. I had to get rid of them layer by layer. The moment when your conscience meets your subconscious is a hell of a wrench. Uh, with me, there came a day when I saw the light. And again, I'm not saying that for everybody to go take LSD. Just more of like what could happen when you lower serotonin and. Right. Yeah, you. Uh, and what was that study about LSD unifying parts of the brain? You know, and so yeah. So so it's basically now they're saying like the neuroscience is finally waking up and saying that consciousness is actually a quantum entanglement phenomenon between different parts of the brain mm-hmm. because they're looking at the at the parts of the brain that process visual information, auditory information, sensory information, right? And these things seem to be happening independently, right? Yet we do have a unified experience. And then they showed that it's basically like the consciousness requires uh, these brain um, regions to talk to each other electromagnetically. That's how anesthesia works. It disrupts that that coherence between the different brain regions. So it's not like so actually your brain still works when you're under under anesthesia, mm-hmm. but the different regions don't talk to each other. And they found out conversely that LSD and some other dopaminergic anti-serotonin drugs promote this coherence between the different brain regions. In other words. They seem to they seem to increase your consciousness, um, and in, you know, in general, your your well being, your mental well being. While serotonin does the exact opposite. Uh, okay, we'll take a one minute break. Thank you guys so much in the chat. Thank you so much for making this show possible. We have an amazing viewership and so many familiar faces. So thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for the extremely generous super chats. Uh, you don't. I'm. I'm like teary eyed. It's it's so uh, I'm, I'm very generous of you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, follow Georgie on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter as well. Uh, Georgie's uh, Idea Labs supplement boutique supplement company is idealabsdc.com. And then there's a lab section if you go to idealabsdc.com slash lab. Uh, I do coaching and that is the sole means of which I support myself. And of course, the Super Chats will help as well. And uh, we were talked about this. It's very like a treacherous territory in the health world to, I mean, you really I, like I knew people in like the paleo world that would have like huge stores and try to diversify as much as possible. And I'd be curious of your thoughts, but I, I really feel like if you have a message and you want to, uh, I don't know, have some kind of. I don't know. I'm not going to speak for everybody, but it can be it can be very hard to maintain integrity. I feel like and try to make a living 
doing something like this. I know you have another job and this isn't your your sole gig, but yeah. I just feel like in the health space, it can, it can be probably pretty tempting to endorse many different products and things that are associated with whatever movement you have. And so, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I do, but uh, it shouldn't be. That's why I don't, I don't endorse products. I mean, they, they, obviously, they have their they have their they have their place in time, um, but ultimately, nothing should be marketed. I fully agree with Ray when he said that marketing is the most pernicious aspect of culture, one of the most toxic ones, right? Mm-hmm. Because it generates, first of all, it deactivates your guiding instinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my opinion, even more so than direct orders, mm-hmm. because it works on a on a subconscious level to trick you into thinking that. You made that choice, right? Mm-hmm. You des- you decided to do that on your own accord. And later on, when things don't work out as planned, it's really bad because you have nobody to blame but yourself. You know, you made that choice to buy the product or get that job or, you know, do whatever the, the commercial was, was pushing you indirectly to do. Um, unlike, you know, an authoritarian boss, right? If your boss orders you to do something, whether you like it or not, you know, let's say you do it, but you can always excuse it in front of yourself, in front of your own conscience by saying, I need to eat, you know, I need that job, you know, or I'll starve. So, of course, under those circumstances, you will do what you're told. But advertising is, that's why I think it's more pernicious, more dangerous, is because it convinces an entire country, entire generation of people that they made their choice and if it didn't work out, it's all on them, right? So, um, so yeah, that's why I, 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 that one of the reasons from the very beginning, I've stayed away from marketing or advertising my products. I've been accused that the studies that I post are like a subtle form of marketing, but at the end of the day, we have to talk about something and those are the pro-metabolic substances. And we don't only talk about things that I sell, right? There are many things that I don't sell. One of them, and, and they're very, they're actually a cornerstone of health, aspirin. I mean, Look at all the studies that have been posted about aspirin. Uh, I don't sell aspirin, and this is probably truly a wonder drug. It's the one thing that can have any kind of a problem. There's bound to be a study that shows, at this point, based on my personal experience, there's studies somewhere with a rat or a mouse or even human saying that aspirin, at the very least, is not going to make you worse, and and very likely it will help. Um, So, yeah, as long as you stay away from pushing this in too much into the commercial world. In other words, saying like, I need more, right? Give me more sales or I'm going to do only for the sales. I think that's when it, that's when it becomes twisted because it becomes vacuous. You, st- you start becoming susceptible to, to bad influences. Like um, you see a study that says, well, maybe aspirin doesn't work so well, right? And then you're not likely to post it because you're selling a product based on that. Well, for the most of these things that, that Ray talks about and most of the, the studies and the, the theory behind the metabolic supplements is there really are no damning studies. I mean, that's, that's actually probably one of the reasons he tells you we're moving in the right direction. Because given how powerful the enemy of the metabolic ther- therapy is, this entire genetic community would kill to kill the metabolic approach, the, 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 the energetic approach, yet they haven't been able to. If anything, they're starting to implode internally. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much where I stand on that. Well, well, something I respect about you and Idea Labs is you know, like you're very knowledgeable and you put your understanding into practice. And all you also you try to bring something unique to the table, where like you know how difficult it is to make a good vitamin E supplement. And so you kind of went out, or not you kind of you went out of your way 
to produce a unique product that like seemingly does not have the the issues that other like soybean laden uh vitamin E products do have. And so so again, yeah, like I I mean just being around the health sphere for, for for so long, you do get the the marketing aspect heavily of some people. And so I think we're I think we're kind of like the anti-marketing live stream or podcast. And I don't think you get very rich that way. But uh, I wouldn't really have it any other way because you got to sleep at night. That's right. Nothing, nothing buys you sleep. <laughs> I agree <laughs> with that. I agree. Sweet. Uh, okay. So were there any other art? Okay. So we've been uh, about an hour and 20 minutes. Should we, should we, mm-hmm. we should get through some more articles, then go through. Let me see if there's anything that I will just like quickly. Then go through super chats and then we'll try to take callers. Although I don't know how that's going to go with zoom, but hopefully well, if anybody in the chat has ever taken a call on zoom and you're like a tech wizard, I'd be interested. Um, let's see. Oh yeah. Well, actually, I mean, the front page has a, one of them is like the, uh, that says that a piece of plastic can learn through trading just like animals. Oh, yeah. I really like that because against seren- what do you call it? Serendipity or synchronicity. I prefer synchronicity. I posted a study about not not the study, but a, about a study about four years ago that like a piece of inanimate matter, I think it was like a Play-Doh or some kind of a dough. And basically through mechanical and electromagnetic stimulation, the scientists were capable of basically uh, triggering memory responses in that quote-unquote inanimate piece of matter. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of J.C. Bose, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The guy who did the work with metals, how, how they get fatigued. Mm-hmm. And if you leave them alone, they recover. He also did work on like memory um, and, you know, res- reflexive behavior in inanimate matter. Long story short, if you talk to anybody, I don't know, even a physicist or even a doctor, and you tell them like that a piece of wood can behave like a human or like an animal and can learn, I mean, they will probably call a psychiatrist to, to, <laughs> for you to get evaluated at, at best, at best. Um, but it's it's astounding that, that it look, I mean, the more evidence we accumulate, the more we realize that we don't know much about matter. Forget about the dualism between animate and inanimate matter. I mean, matter to most people, the materialist, as Ray calls them, it's like something simple, right? It's an object extending through space. That's the Descartes, or the idea of René Descartes. Mm-hmm. But the more evidence we get, the more it turns out that matter is much closer in its nature, the ultimate nature of which Aristotle said is unknowable, right? It's much more closer to this idea of being a potential, right? A potential that's constantly developing and actualizing itself. And then anything made of matter, which is us, has largely the same properties. Um, I mean, there we all have, I mean, we get a, a person has a different function, different purpose, than let's say like a piece of rock, but it's at, the, some, at, at some very fundamental level, which apparently includes learning mm-hmm. and responding to the environment, we are identical. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that should, <laughs> at the very least, give people some, some pause when they get on TV and say that pretty much everything that needs to be known about physics is known. The standard model is great. The Higgs boson particle has been discovered. And basically there is nothing more to learn in physics. At least that's, that's, that's what we currently hear from, from most physicists. Yet, simple experiments like that show you that we don't know much about the physical world we live in. Uh, we think we do, 
but it's mostly it's mostly dogma and it doesn't have much much evidence behind it. Well, uh, not a one that I really no, like. Oh, before we jump on, you sent me this uh, Aristotle quote, but according yeah. to Aristotle, to be something always means to be a work in a, a certain way. In the case of fish at rest, it's actually actuality is the activity of metabolism, the work by which it, uh, it is it is constantly transforming material from its environment into parts of itself and losing material from itself into its environment. The activity by which uh, by which the fish maintains itself as a fish. And as just the fish, uh, it is, uh, and which ceases only when the fish ceases to be. Yeah. And even so the rock the at the meta- uh, yeah. go, go. Hey, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say that in terms of metabolism, even to, even according to Aristotle, is a very central thing of what we are. Without metabolism, there is no human. It's like I mean, you 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 revert back to 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 just matter. It's it, to a substance, but you're no longer human. So in other words, in order to be human, so many people say, well, yeah, yeah, you know, you have to be alive. But in order to be human and continue continue to stay as a human, you need to metabolize. And I'm going to, I'm going to extend that because cancer also metabolizes, but at a much more primitive and lower level than differentiated humans. So the actuality of a human depends not only on it continuing to metabolize, but continuing to metabolize intensively through oxidative phosphorylation. When you start interfering with that, you're going back to, you know, we're getting closer and closer to the rock, right? Uh, but in this case, you, we never fully revert to a rock. We, 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 we devolve into uh, these hungry, uh, quickly dividing, dead differentiated cells, which is a much more primitive form of existence. And that's probably what life looked like on Earth about 4 billion years ago. I put up like a video I made on Facebook a long time ago of, of J.C. Bose, but that is like the guy... If any, if anybody is interested to research this more about conscious rocks and things like that, yeah, and you have some links to him as well, I think. Yep, uh, he's. Uh, I think he he has a book actually um, yep. about like the fatigue and learning in metals. Um, he, I think he got kicked out of Cambridge University because of this research. Really, Ray has an article somewhere saying like, uh, for the British aristocrat, aristocrat, aristocratic society. There were religious implications in this in this uh, uh, arrogant Hindu's work. <laughs> it was basically saying that's like you guys are not you're not any better than the rock on the, on the road. <laughs> I mean, so are we, but <laughs> well, well, you can't. All, <laughs> you, well, you can't see it, but I have a video of like plants reacting to be like the light and and things. And then um, what was the guy? Uh, shoot, I totally forgot his name. But there's a video on I think on uh, New York Times where like a, a plant is looking for a pole, you know, and it's like winding around and then it finds the pole and attaches and, and winds up. But yeah, I, I don't think that's very far fetched these days to say that like plants are uh, like conscious beings, you know, but these videos really uh, cement it and make it more real. Well, if it's anybody has any doubt, you remember my study, my post about plants reacting to anesthesia. Yeah. So given the premise that anesthesia only works on conscious uh, uh, beings, more importantly, beings with that they have a nervous system because that's they're saying whatever you are, whatever your consciousness is currently, it's predicated to be in the brain. Well, if plants react to anesthesia, then either consciousness does not require a brain, or uh, you know, uh, or, or I, I don't know, I don't know what else would explain. I mean, either our current theory about how they work in humans is wrong, or plants are conscious as well, and consciousness doesn't require a nervous system. 
Okay, Georgie, maybe time for like one more because I'm or I don't think we had that many super chats, but maybe the calls will take a bit of time. I don't know. You uh, any you wanted to talk about? Uh, I'll just do like a quick one or two. So one of them is low dose metal in blue may stop Alzheimer's disease. That's on like, on like the second page of my mm-hmm. blog. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like a follow-up of a study. I'm sure you've heard about that company in UK that's trying to patent metallic blue mm-hmm. for Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And they that. did one study about five years ago. The results were really were very positive. And now the second study showed that a low dose of metallic blue, that's the key part. So they, they actually found out that metallic blue, if you take more than 60 milligrams daily, you don't get any more benefit. And that's pretty much the cutoff that, I think Ray has been telling people and there's studies about depression and bipolar disorder. So low dose is just fine. You don't need to, you don't need to overdo it. But uh, they said that it, it, it stops cognitive decline. It, it, oh, I didn't say stop. It decreases cognitive decline by more than 85%. So another way of putting it, it's pretty much, it stops it, right? I don't know of any other drug for Alzheimer's that has this kind of a blockbuster result. And they say this, in the actual study itself, that metallic blue will, in all likelihood, it will become the first successful cure, curative uh, intervention for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, uh, male fertility depends on intensity of metabolism. I think that's a pretty good one, too. Uh, I, I would want to talk about that one. I, I just caught my eye, and I know these are like big themes of this live stream, but maybe the aging is uh, likely caused by decreased respiration metabolism, not genetic mutations, even though we kind of already chatted about it so this one is a follow-up by the same group of people on a study that i posted about about four years ago in which they took it but it was in vitro right mm-hmm. so they took a bunch of old human cells the equivalent of i think they said 90 year old cells right mm-hmm. and they gave them glycine mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. these cells reverted back to their youthful state and and they noticed that a key aspect of, a, of an old cell of a senescent cell is is its inability to metabolize glucose or mm-hmm. something in the cell that was basically making the cell to, to convert glucose into lactic acid and prefer fat, right? They didn't know what it was, but they found out that glycine reverses that. And now there's basically, they confirmed this and they, they talk about taurine, the amino acid taurine, um, and they also about, about glycine. And they basically said that the decline in mitochondrial function is what, in, in their opinion, fully explains aging. More importantly, now they're starting to make the call that aging is actually a disease. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind that according to the FDA and most other health authorities around the world, is aging is a perfectly natural process. It should not be treated. It cannot be treated. That's just that's just the way life is, right? You, you, you're born, you get old, and you die. Now they're saying it's like, we don't have evidence, evidence for that. <laughs> in, in, in our view and based on the evidence we have is aging is actually undesirable. It's pathological. And it's indistinguishable from disease. Mm-hmm. They're the same thing. And I'm sure you, I mean, we can bring up all of these references to Ray where he talks about that, you know, like if you look at a cancer tissue, the cells in the, in, in the tumor in the immediate vicinity are about 30 to 40 years older mm-hmm. than the cells in the, like a, like a further away, in a, in a healthier part of the body. Mm-hmm. So aging and disease are largely the same things. You can think of disease as accelerated aging. It doesn't matter if it's cancer. It doesn't matter if it's Alzheimer's. It doesn't matter if it's diabetes. All it comes down to is how well you metabolize. And more and more evidence is now more people are saying like, yes, so we, we can treat it and we should treat it. 
Can we riff on a subject here? Just if one person is aging at an accelerated rate, would I wouldn't necessarily or what would you think? Like, I wouldn't necessarily that person is less healthy than the other person. For example, uh, or maybe I'm thinking about this incorrectly, but like the person aging at a slower rate could be still be like a serial killer or something. You know what I, you know what yeah, I mean? Sure, sure. How would um, how would you unpack that? And define. So, so if you're aging really fast, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, what this usually means is that you start to reproduce at a very early age. Mm-hmm. One of the first things is early puberty. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you're aging very fast, you're going to get your puberty early. Uh, chances are you will have much larger family than than like your than your like a you know less quickly aging peers. Mm-hmm. Um, but your children will be a lot less healthy. So in other words. You, you will try to compensate. You'll try to compensate for quality with quantity when it comes to, to your progeny, to your offspring. Um, and then, you know, chances are that if you're aging much more, much faster, you'll you'll die earlier. It doesn't matter. You're, you're going to be sicker. It just, it will be compressed into a much shorter interval, right? It, it may, depending on the disease. I mean, I think for neurodegenerative diseases, especially, you know, because the brain is so sensitive to energetic manipulation, um, I think there is actually evidence showing that that accelerated aging leads is highly correlated with with uh, brain disease. Yeah. There is a disease called progeria, which is accelerated aging in humans. And you see these people who basically they're like uh, I don't know they're 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 15 but they look like they're 80. Mm-hmm. Um, these people, first of all, they don't live as long as the others naturally, right? And second of all, they don't have higher rates of cancer or cardiovascular disease, but they do have much higher rates of of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yes, faster aging doesn't necessarily mean more disease, but in some aspects, especially the highly the tissues that are most highly sensitive to energetic deprivation, I think that's that's where it's going to manifest itself because whatever energy you can muster up producing, it goes towards reproduction because that's that's really the what the body is is kind of being told to do. Like, hurry up, reproduce, and die. And I could be missing the point here, but like what, like a child with progeria or something that had an empathetic uh, f- philosophy about life or, or something or was more nuanced with the ways they thought about things versus the chiseled, very yeah. masculine person or something that was very uh, sick in the worldview, like the Maslow quote that um, people are made sick by sick culture. I know this is very complicated, but like I, I – I, I would be hard pressed to say like the progeria kid is less like maybe physiologically aging faster, but how would you distinguish health between worldviews? Do you know what I mean? Um, I would say, I mean, there's, so first of all, you can do some tests for intelligence, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I know IQ tests are very biased, right? But you can do things like reflex. You can, you can measure general health. This, which despite the difference in aging rates, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm pretty sure the person who is authoritarian, serotonin-driven, right, uh, like militaristic style, they will score, and it has, has been shown for these people to score at the level of a retard in Norfolk. <laughs> I mean, sorry to use that word, but that's like, that's because these, these were older studies. They were done on the U.S. Army at the time they were still orphanages in the 50s and 60s. And that's what these studies found out. That these people don't think, they're incapable of thinking, Probably by design, right? That's that's what you that's what happens to you when you go into the army. Mm-hmm. You're being taught not to think but to follow orders. Mm-hmm. And at some point, this really gets you. You know, like if you're an organism in this world, 
and you're incapable of handling information from the world, you know, your intelligence suffers. And by the way, speaking of uh, like increased rate of disease, former military personnel, um, even the ones that weren't deployed into war zones, they have a much higher rate of all of the all of the degenerative diseases, cancer, neurogenive, cardiovascular, diabetes. So it's not always about the stress. I mean, you can, I guess you can say being turned into an authoritarian person is also a kind of stress, mm-hmm. but like they've measured the cortisol levels and ACTH. And for many of these people, they're not, they're not out of line. I mean, they're, they're towards the, maybe the upper 25th percentile, but they're not really, they're not, they're not the same as let's say somebody with depression or somebody with like, uh, I don't know, somebody with, uh, with a chronic Cancer, cancer. People with cancer have high cortisol. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it, these people have lower cortisol, yet they're much more unhealthy systemically um, than 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 basically somebody who is who is not in the military, who hasn't been, whose brain, whose mind hasn't been damaged yet. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess there are many different aspects of aging, but in this case, there was strictly speaking uh, about the way the cell proliferates the way the cell repairs itself and basically how how well the cell maintains a differentiated state mm-hmm. right because these are in vitro studies clearly you can't compare the intelligence of maybe you can i don't know but they, they didn't look at that basically they're looking at how healthy the cells were and health in this case meant some very specific biochemical parameters artists what is their protein synthesis rate um, what is their replication rate what is their senescent rate um, and basically, like how resistant they were to like uh, carcinogens, how resistant they were to agents that cause dead differentiation. So it, it, there, there, there was some very specific tests, but they're all associated with aging. You know, as we age, we don't renew our tissues; don't renew as well, right? As we age, uh, we start with uh, our protein synthesis declines. Loss of muscle mass is one of the one of the most visible signs, but it happens everywhere. Your organs atrophy as well. We don't see that on the surface, right? So all of these things that, 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 that they tested for turn out to be fully reversible by supplying extra glucose and giving amino acids like taurine and glycine. In other words, restoring the glucose metabolism, but make sure you also supply the glucose, right? Glycine and taurine wouldn't do you much good if you keep trying to burn fat. And worse, actually even worse would be to try to oxidize these amino acids as fuel. That's, that's even worse. Okay, we'll get into super chats, but before we do that, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Danny, uh, twitter.com slash Danny Roddy. You can follow Mr. Georgie Dinkoff at, uh, at hateit on Twitter. You can go to idealabsdc.com to check out Georgie's uh, Idealabs supplement company. And I do coaching, and uh, I'm going to, there are three episodes right now on BitChute, but I will, I am downloading my, like all of the YouTube videos, and I will be putting them on there. Because who knows what's going to happen to YouTube? Uh, okay, let's get remember into our it. conversation when you first started this. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, George. Before we even started this, Georgie was like, "I really think they're going to be shutting like down health <laughs> talk on YouTube." And I was, I think, I, 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 it's not I didn't disagree with that, but I was definitely downplaying it. And again, I could be crazy. I'm open to that idea, but I swear to God, something has happened to the channel. And I, I just don't same, like. Same thing to my blog. I mean, some of I, my results used to come up a lot higher for certain topics because some of them are pretty obscure, right? Uh-huh. Like giving glycine to aging cells. The only results you're likely to get is like my blog, the people who published the study, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe a few university sites. And I used to like, I mean, when I was searching for that, 
my article used to come up on the first page. Now, yeah. if you try to search for it, even if you had hate it, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's either buried or it doesn't show up at all on the first 10 pages of Google. Well, <laughs> and other people should try this, but if you type in uh, like Danny Roddy repeat, I had to scroll so far down for even one of my videos. And that, but again, I'm trying to say that I think using words like CIA or climate change or whatever, <laughs> I, and I'm sure the transcripts to our actual live streams, yeah. I'm not saying we're specifically targeted by somebody. I just think that the YouTube algorithm uh, probably uh, preferentially decreases content like this. And then because I have the analytics in front of me, I'm extremely suspicious because it uh, it just, it, it, yeah, it doesn't make sense. So you are targeted, just not individual. It's just anybody who triggers that specific uh, routine in the algorithm is basically getting buried in the results. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but we're not going to stop. So uh, just keep on trucking. Okay, so let's get to some of the super chats here. Thank you guys so much. Sincerely appreciate you guys taking your time Friday night. Um, okay, Son of Rome for $5. Thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate it. Hey, Danny and Georgie, can you guys give uh, your thoughts on normal T4 and T3 with high reverse T3 and subnormal body temp after a few years of lime and low carb? Uh, well, I think if reverse T3 is high, that the verdict is out. Like you're not going to feel normal because it's it has a much higher affinity for the thyroid receptor than even T3. So you you have to do whatever you can do. Usually, T3 only therapy mm-hmm. to um, to basically get the get the reverse T3 uh, lower. Um, that's really the problem with the, with the thyroid test is that you can have quite a few of them come back normal, right? And but if you do all of them. You know, if there is an issue with your metabolism, usually at least one comes back really out of whack and you can have normal thyroid function if you get. The only thing that's, that can, it's probably, it's probably consistent with good thyroid health is if your T4 comes back low, but your T3 is fine and your TSH is relatively low, then it's fine. And it basically means maybe your liver is converting too much, uh, you know, very quickly the T4 is getting converted to T3. Um, or your thyroid has a preference of putting out a little bit more T3 than it usually does, than, than it does for most other people. Everything else, if you do the full panel of thyroid tests, which is, oh, hold on a second. I need to turn <laughs> on the lights. Uh, Thomas, I'm not going to upload daily. Sorry about this. Um, all the other tests that you do, I mean, you will find out that it's very hard to to be in good metabolic health if any of the other parameters, such as reverse T3 specifically, T3 and TSH, if they're out of whack. Um, and actually, there, there's a number of different surrogate tests that are not related to thyroid. They're actually the indication of thyroid function, but they don't they don't test for thyroid, right? One of them is albumin. I was surprised to find out that um, not many people know, but albu- the levels of albumin, albumin in your blood is actually the most reliable predictor of longevity or, or even of death or at the very least severe disability. And albumin synthesis in the liver is heavily dependent on thyroid. In fact, that's the major factor that controls that and, of course, liver health, right? But then if your liver health is not fine, if your albumin levels come back low, your doctor will suspect liver disease. But that's also controlled by thyroid function. So it's, so it's almost like if you, your liver is not working well and or one of these thyroid tests comes back out of whack, chances are metabolism is, is low. And in this case, specific case, if reverse T3 is elevated, 
uh, I would ask the doctor because the standard therapy, normally they don't like giving prescribing T3, excuse me, but in this case they will. And I would ask for the therapy because it's hard. And reverse T3 has a very long half-life. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a problem to get it out of the cell, but T3 can do it. Can I push back on that? Not that you are necessarily saying this, but I, I, I encounter a lot of people that think that reverse T3 is solely a function or it's solely a result of taking T4. But like, I, I, I feel like that's not right. Like, because other things can increase those deiodinase enzymes that make reverse T3. It's not like just you take T4 and automatically your reverse T3 grows up, goes up. It could be due to malnutrition or something else. Right. And, and taking a combination of T3 or T4 could lower the reverse T3. Exactly. Yeah. And also there, there are other thyroid hormones. There's T1 and T2. Both of these, there's now evidence showing up that both of these can actually also get converted into, into, into reverse T3. And how do you get T, T1 and T2 from very quick deactivation of T3? So in other words, high reverse T3 could be a sign of very quick deactivation of T3, which I think is what you just said. And that happens to be very common in a number of different chronic conditions, most notably in cancer, but also in diabetes, um, in uh, Alzheimer's disease is another good one, infectious disease too. Um, but usually in, an infectious, in a chronic infection, the body actually, it's almost like an adaptive mechanism. It tries to prevent too much tissue breakdown, which would happen if you have very high T3. Yeah. But anything else usually is basically it's a pathological process, especially in cancer. Yeah, this so, yeah, not only T4. I know this is like a myth propagated by the doctors, but actually uh, uh, T3 cannot directly get converted to reverse T3 despite the unfortunate naming convention, but its metabolites T1 and T2 can. Uh, okay, I didn't know that. The Van Den Beld from a uh, paper from 2005, they say high serum reverse T3 may result from a decreased peripheral metabolism of thyroid hormone due to aging process itself and or disease and may reflect a catabolic state. So just yep. what we said. Um, okay. So thank you so much for that, uh, son of Rome. Sincerely appreciate it. Uh, there's one message redacted, so I can't see who actually uh, did this one, but it was for $5. Thank you so much. Son of Rome, for, uh, for another $5, thank you so much. Uh, for lingering Lyme-related knee issues, what kind of topicals would be safe and effective to experiment with? Um, I would say probably progesterone because it has some direct um, inhibitory activity on, on pretty much any, any infectious uh, agent. It's mostly known to have effects on, on viruses and, and potentially bacteria as well. But um, I have clients and I know people who actually – were diagnosed with Lyme disease. They did go through the antibiotic course, right? And their tests came back negative, but they kept, kept experiencing joint issues. And actually, uh, one of them went and got a biopsy, and it turns out that they still had Lyme. So these tests really, the blood tests for Lyme are not very reliable. Long story short, if you have joint symptoms, um, things like progesterone, and actually even methylene blue, which has some very direct antipathogen activity, um, it may help. I don't know how well because I don't know of a case where this is being done with methylene blue. But I know that photodynamic therapy, which is the combination of methylene blue and red light or, or red laser, um, has successfully been used for treating Lyme disease, at least in an animal model. So maybe what you can do is, you know, put a few drops on your knees, turn them all blue, and then, you know, take that red light and start shining on your knees. That's, that's what I would try. 
Sweet. Thank you so much for that, Son of Rome. Uh, oh, we never announced the winners of the Idea Labs. You mean that there is a giveaway or yeah. the winners? Yeah. Oh, okay. Or that well, right. one that there was a giveaway. Right. <laughs> there are two there are winners. Okay, so we're we're continuing the giveaway. So all you need to do is like, subscribe, and leave a comment. And I'm gonna do show notes for all these shows like I've been doing. So I, I know it'd be kind of all over the place. Um, but I already chose winners, and they were Josh Quintanilla and Lez. And so you guys need to email me Danny at DannyRoddy.com and. We're streamlining the giveaway and we're just going to be doing Tokovit. So no more choosing what supplement you want, unfortunately. But Tokovit is a very good product and I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, anything else to add to that, Jordy? No, um, you know, it's been, uh, I personally intend to continue the giveaway. I think it's a, I think it's a good thing. Um, but um, yeah, <laughs> just... Just email email your da- your Danny your addresses and uh, uh, I usually send these out the same day I get the I get the message so uh, you should be able to get it within at most a week if you're within the United States. Awesome. Speak of the speak of the devil. Lez says for two dollars we had missed you. Thank you so much, Ellie. Thank you for the chronic support of the show and everything I do. Uh, just a great person as well. Uh, Drew F. Hey Drew uh, for five dollars he says. Georgie, why have you changed the solvent in some of your products to uh, eugenol? Love your stuff, yeah, but the solvent changes yeah. can be frustrating. So a couple of things. Um, eugenol, as many of you know, um, there have been some issues with precipitation, specifically for products containing pregnenolol. Pregnenolol is notoriously hard to dissolve in anything, really, um, except some very toxic solvents, um, such as uh, chloroform. <laughs> you don't want that. It used to be used as anesthesia, right? Clearly, I'm not going to use something like that. I think it's even banned by the FDA. By the FDA. Um, so I've emailed Ray over the years um, asking, one of the first questions was like, why don't you have a pregnant product in vitamin E? And he immediately came back with, uh, because it's impossible to dissolve, or if you dissolve it, it doesn't stay in solution for much longer, mm-hmm. or very long. So um, it, was a, it was a non-starter. He's like, so I said, well, have you tried some solvents? And then he responded with everything and then some. <laughs> So if Ray, I, for a long time, I thought, well, if Ray has tried everything and, and nothing worked, then, uh, you know, there isn't much hope. But keep, people kept complaining that the, our um, pregnenolone product, Stresnol, which is only pregnenolone, or Pensterone, which is pregnenolone, DHA, kept precipitating, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I've been searching for over five years for a solvent that would actually dissolve pregnenolone and keep it in solution without mm-hmm. precipitation. Mm-hmm. Recently, somebody asked Ray about uh, a natural anti-inflammatory, antibacterial, anti-pathogen, anti-estrogen um, preservative, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they wanted to make their own cosmetic cream. Mm-hmm. And Ray responded back by saying eugenol. He outwardly recommended it mm-hmm. and said, I think it has a, a, an, an exorbitant amount of evidence about, you know, about all of these beneficial effects, like anti-inflammatory, etc. So I went out and I did my own digging, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, came back with results. It's actually an estrogen receptor antagonist, mm-hmm. if you believe in receptors. Long story short, it dissolves pregnenolone quite well. So I'm hoping that all the pregnenolone products and the 5-alpha dihydroprogesterone, which is even harder to dissolve than pregnenolone, um, the, the, the issues with precipitation are, are finally resolved. Um, I mean, we've, we've had two batches of these already out 
And so far, I've, I have a few bottles that are sitting outside on my balcony, and it's it's getting colder in DC now. It basically gets into the you know uh, upper you know 10, 12 degrees Fahrenheit at night, and so far there's been no precipitation. So I'm hoping that that will resolve. So again, to answer the question, it was a combination of the molecule itself seems to have really positive effects on human health. Ray seems to think very highly of it. And three, it seems to be a great solvent for pregnenolone and other hard-to-dissolve steroids that we're selling, and I'm hoping that we'll be finally able to resolve the precipitation issues for good. And last but not least, it's also a great transdermal enhancer, right? And last but not least, it seems to work similarly to lidocaine. And I know you like lidocaine, and uh, yeah, Danny, I know you've done some experiments with it, and you've asked Ray about it, et cetera. And if you look at the profile of eugenol, I mean, I'm not saying it has the same effects on health as, of, as lidocaine, but all of its anesthetic effects and the way it achieves them seem to largely overlap those with lidocaine. Now, those are not raised words, those are mine. Uh, so you feel free to check out the evidence, but that's another thing that kind of caught my eye and said, you know, it's probably a good thing to have it. I'm sure Ray has seen it, uh, but he didn't specifically recommend it for that reason. His recommendation was, uh, potent anti-inflammatory, um, potent anti-estrogen, potent antibacterial, antiviral, and anti-pathogen in general. So that's that's what we decided to use. Hopefully, that will be the last change you see in solvents um, because everything else seems pretty stabilized at this point. Sweet, I didn't even know about it. <laughs> okay, this one is from Michael for five dollars. Thank you so much, Michael. He says, "Can you give progesterone to someone who has?" Uh, progesterone receptor positive cancer seems the receptors theory is just a theory. Um, not only you can, <laughs> but we're going to find out very soon for something very similar with, with the prostate cancer study that I'm doing. Keep in mind the first prostate cancer is an androgen receptor positive prostate cancer. So if DHT, which is the most potent androgen agonist, cures it, then at least for that cancer, I mean, but it, it does undermine the whole theory. I don't think there is such a thing as an estrogen receptor positive cancer because if there was, by now, the antiprogestin known as RU486 would have been approved as treatment for that specific cancer. It is not. There is no, to my, to my knowledge, there is no chemotherapy approved uh, endocrine, I mean, hormonal, hormonally acting chemotherapy approved for that type of cancer. But there is, actually, there are several of them very potent anti-progestins on the market, yet nobody's treating the cancer with them. So to, I suspect that this is a mutated receptor. And just because they see it inside of the cancer cell, they think it's progesterone that's causing it. So they're, they're afraid that if you give progesterone, it's going to stimulate growth. But keep in mind that progesterone, first of all, it hasn't been tried. I'm not aware of any studies showing that natural bioidentical progesterone promotes cancer growth in a progesterone receptor positive breast cancer. If anything, it's the opposite. There are some studies about the synthetic progestines, right? But Ray's latest newsletter does a pretty good review of them, um, exposing them for what they are. I've posted a number of studies showing that most of these are actually androgenic and estrogenic. And the, really, the name progestogen is, is, is really a misnomer. It's a travesty. Uh, I don't know who came up with the idea of calling these things progestogens, but they're not. Long story short, natural bioidentical progesterone, if anything, should inhibit the, the growth of this cancer through a number of different mechanisms, 
some of them non-genomic. Keep in mind, progesterone acts as an oxidizing agent, depletes reduced glutathione, shifts the cell's redox balance heavily towards oxidation. And I think most of, uh, most of the, the, the viewers and listeners at this point have seen the studies that I've posted that talk about that just, the, just shifting the cell towards reduction, whether that's by uh, depriving of oxygen or increasing fatty acid oxidation through the Rendell cycle, or in general, doing metabolic things that inhibit the metabolism of glucose, that alone is sufficient and necessary to turn the cell into a cancer cell, right? Actually, there's no cancer cell. It's just to make it grow and divide and, 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 and metastasize. So the fact that there is a mutated receptor reminds me of that study post on Reddit, which showed that this is a downstream effect of deranged metabolism. So progesterone is probably one of the most protective things you can do regardless of the receptor expression of the cancer. Um, I think there was, a, uh, there was a study published in 2011 which showed that there are no hormonally inactive uh, breast cancers. Even the triple negative one was shown, at least in vitro, to react and be stimulated by estrogen and be inhibited, but I think they, gave, they put an aromatase inhibitor. So if this is a triple negative breast cancer and estrogen still promotes it, then either the whole thing about you know, being, being receptor negative or positive is bunk, or the main effects on cancer for or against it are non-receptor driven. They're metabolic, right? I mean, they're the, by controlling the redox ratio, by, by basically uh, shifting, by controlling the Randall cycle, and progesterone has protective effects across all of these different aspects. Promotes the oxidation of glucose, decreases the oxidation of fat, decreases the endogenous synthesis of fat by inhibiting the enzyme fatty acid synthase. It inhibits the COX and the LOX enzymes, which drive inflammation, which is heavily implicated in any cancer, regardless of whether the medical uh, industry considers it um, hormonally driven or not. Um, you know, again, shifts the redox balance towards oxidation. Um, and um, it actually has a water structuring effect, which is very, very uh, heavily involved in cancer proliferation as well. It's a GABA agonist, perhaps the most potent endogenous one, even stronger in GABA. Um, I think Ray has published multiple times on the how the cancer cell is in a super excited state and things that calm it down actually are, have been shown repeatedly to be therapeutic. Um, it's um, what is, uh, what, what's what I was going to say? Um, and um, so it's just the proliferation of the cell. Oh, cortisol. I mean, basically cortisol is a huge driver of cancer, even though it's an anti-inflammatory steroid. Um, actually, it promotes the oxidation of fat and the synthesis of fat. Um, this is now becoming recognized in oncology departments around the world. They're now trying to do like a, either do like a very low dosage of cortisol or, or a pulsed and, you know, uh, sporadic instead of a daily um, because cortisol is such a huge part of current oncological treatments. They don't want to dump it right away, but now they're realizing that it promotes heavily the growth of cancers, especially blood cancers. Long story short, as a, you know, as, a, as a recap is, I don't think that natural progesterone will have a negative effect on that cancer. I would like to see any evidence for that. Um, the fact that it's officially labeled as progesterone receptive positive, at best, it means nothing. At worst, it's probably a, a, a remnant of, of the 1950s and 1960s eras when all of these cancers were defined, and not much has changed since then. I mean, if you look at the different breast cancer types, most of them were, the, the opinion on them was solidified about 50 years ago. Since then, 
Diagnostically, things have changed, but treatment-wise and labeling-wise, not, not much has changed. So I wouldn't be concerned about it. Um, and if the doctor tries, I would love to see any evidence if the doctor can come up with some, but I highly doubt it because I have looked for these things um, related to the prostate cancer study, and I found out that there is no such thing as a you know hormonally inactive cancer, and there is no such thing as a cancer that is not driven by estrogen. Almost all of them are. So progesterone being an antagonist, the main endogenous antagonist to estrogen, the main endogenous antagonist to cortisol, one of the main antagonists to inflammation, one of the most potent agents shifting the cell towards oxidation. I mean, it's hard to come up with a thing that progesterone does that would not be therapeutic for the cancer, except for that stupid and probably fraudulent theory about this cancer being estrogen receptor positive. Sweet. Thank you for that. Um, in Ray's new newsletter that just came out a few days ago, Money, Progesterone, and Life, November 2019, and you can subscribe to his newsletter. Uh, the newsletter is available by email now, and it's $28 US for um, one newsletter every two months, which can be paid through PayPal at raypeatsnewsletter at gmail.com. Okay, uh, let's get to the other ones. Oh, one last thing. Yeah, yeah. If the doctor pushes to treat this cancer with some kind of a synthetic progesterone, I would fight back as hard as I can because almost all of them are heavily pro-carcinogenic. Pro pro they're, they're not only carcinogenic, but once the cancer is already there, they're heavily, they, they, they speed up its growth and trigger metastasis as well. Mm. There's, I don't know of a single good synthetic progesterone. If that's what a doctor pushes, you, need, you, you definitely need, need a new doctor. Good stuff. Okay, that was Michael. Thank you so much, Michael, for for $5. Steph, uh, continuing her trend of being incredible for $62.80. Thank you so much, Steph. Best moderator in the world. (laughs) Uh, I like how she makes these, like, they're they're non-rounded amounts as if she, like, went to the bar or something, like $62.80, right? (laughs) I think they have an astrological origin. Uh, do, probably, yes. uh, Vince says uh, Vince twelve sixty or one two sixty uh, for twenty dollars. Thank you so much, Vince. He says uh, young man low prolactin but DHEA DHEAS elevated. What causes the DHEA elevation? TSH T three and T four levels excellent. Test level moder- uh, testosterone level moderate in DHT. Okay, this is a, a lot to remember. D- and DHT low. Mm-hmm. Elevated DHEAS. Uh, he's saying that the TSH, T3, and T4 are excellent. Uh, moderate testosterone, low DHT. Yeah. What steps could reverse the initiation of hair loss? And um, why isn't DHEA converting into DHT? Did you get all that? Yeah. A couple of things. So, first of all, I mean, ju- just the test that, you, that they're already there, they're indicative that gonadal function is suboptimal, right? Because T is is low but low normal, right? And DHT is low. So whenever you have these, like basically serum levels of testosterone and the hydrotestosterone are primarily an indication of how well your gonads are working. DHEA is mostly an adrenal steroid. So naturally, if gonadal function declines, the adrenals have to pick up the slack. Um, so... Uh, I would, I mean, in order to get like a more complete picture, I would also measure ACTH and cortisol. 
um, and potentially even progesterone. But at this point, the, I, I think the evidence is leaning towards, um, I don't want to call it hypogonadism, but the, the gonads are not working as well as they should be. So maybe test LH and FSH, see, see if there's anything related to the pituitary. Um, definitely test ACTH and cortisol to see how they how these correlate with DHEAS. Now, um, DHS, DHEAS is elevated, but it will really depend on the cortisol as well. Because the cortisol is close to, so if the ratio of DHEA to cortisol is not high, despite the high DHEAS, then you are then you are in a catabolic state, and just the elevated cortisol can block the conversion of T into DHT and of DHEAS into into DHT as well. So it's it's either cortisol that's driving this or something at the pituitary level. That would, that would be my guess. So I will do these tests, uh, you know, the pituitary hormones, LH, FSH, ACTH, morning and PM cortisol, ideally both at the, in the same day, just to see if there's a pattern also matters, right? You can have normal cortisol in, in like in the morning, but if it's high at night, it's still, it's still a dysfunction. Um, and then, um, yeah, there'll be, that, those are things that I will do. Vitamin D is also a very big factor in gonadal function. I will test vitamin D as well and, and total cholesterol. So you have to do a number of different tests and they all converge together to paint a more complete picture. Right now, the only thing we can see is that potentially there is, you know, adrenal overactivity and combined with, uh, with uh, suboptimal gonadal function. That alone can trigger hair loss is what triggered my hair loss uh, back in 2009. So just a correction, uh, the Steph number is not from astrological origin. It's not. <laughs> So just a correction I there. I seem to remember like 6280, 6185, 64, something. It's always in the 60s, but they're never like they're never like round numbers. There's always like something after the decimal point. Uh, well, to, to piggyback on your answer, so this Devi paper uh, et al. from 2016, they say androgenic alopecia role of androgen levels. And in the paper, they say increased mean levels of DHEAS is significantly associated with increased clinical severity of male pattern uh, male pattern androgenic alopecia. And they also note a TSH level of over 2.5 or around 2.4, 2.5, which we know is uh, in another paper was over two is associated with elevated cortisol. Um, and yeah, and this is, I get a lot of email about this, but the DHEA, like we've talked about, I think many other times is DHEA rises with cortisol. Exactly. And then That's at what a, I said. Yeah. And at a certain so, point, so without the test, without a test for cortisol and ACTH, we don't know. I mean, it's great on paper. It's great to have high DHEAS, right? But it, it matters what cortisol does as well. If cortisol is also elevated, you're not in a good state. Yeah. yeah. So if anything, you just see the high DHEA as a sign of stress. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Chronic in stress, a healthier stress. person, eventually, if this health, if this stress is prolonged enough, Eventually, you'll see a decline in DHEAS while cortisol will stay elevated. And really, the very last stage, which is what Celia called the, uh, it's really like like when you're really starting to fall apart, then cortisol levels also start to decline. But yeah, the, anything else, uh, you know, the good news is if even if there is adrenal hyperactivity, you're still at the healthy stage where you're where you're adapting. You know, once these things start to decline, the adrenal steroids, then it's not a good sign um, in Celia's book and in my experience as well. Yeah, on one other one in a Pitts et al. in two, in 1987, 
said the high or no the another quote here uh they say this study adds evidence to the possibility that hyperadrenalism may be an important element in the complex biochemistry of male pattern baldness and so this was like actual science about baldness before it uh went off the rails <laughs> before dht became the boogeyman right <laughs> yeah and so i what uh, finasteride comes out in i think 1994 1997 and then it's it's game over um okay where are we okay uh crystal cat for twenty dollars thank you so much crystal cat uh they say appreciate the live streams thanks uh thank you so much sincerely appreciate that uh dylan for ten dollars says what is the danger of too much baking soda I've been having four teaspoons every day. Uh, four teaspoons, that's about 12 grams. That's not too much. Uh, well, athletes, at least elite athletes do something called uh, soda, baking soda loading. Uh-huh. Uh, not maybe, I don't know. How milk sh- know milk shaking, right? Or is that for horses? For horses. So, uh, milk shaking, exactly. I was going to say it's banned in horses, actually, mm-hmm. because it's a performance in cancer. So, uh, but the dosage for elite athletes that they do, and most of the human studies with Human athletes, they actually do 20 to 25 grams in a single setting. <laughs> that usually has the effect of giving most people immediate uh, case of the of the loose stools. So, so 12 grams, especially if they're spread out throughout the day, I don't think I don't I don't think it's a problem, especially considering that it also raises carbon dioxide, right? If this was like pure salt, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't be concerned about it, but Eating that much salt as a sodium chloride, a stable salt, will probably make one too hot for comfort. Um, and since that's clearly not the case, and also carbon dioxide is rising, I don't think it's an issue. The only thing I remember ever seeing was that there was a person who already had an established and severe ulcer and has had, has had it, can had it, for about 15 years. And that person took a, I think they took about 15 grams of baking soda in a single sitting because they thought they were having a like a like a acid reflux, right? And they thought like the baking soda would neutralize it, and they're also perforated. Now that's that's one case study. That's the only thing I've ever seen. Um, and when this person immediately went for surgery, right? They and they said that the damage was already there. Maybe the baking soda triggered, maybe not. But they decided to publish the case study anyways. But they thought it was a hefty theological dosage anyways, and it isn't relevant for most people. Uh, sweet. Thank you, Georgie. And thank you, Dylan. Emma Sarakis, who is going to be joining me uh, on the 3rd of January, I think. And we're going to go through like a, a proper Emma live stream. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> the last one gave I still have PTSD from the last uh, three person live stream, <laughs> which turned out to have a bunch of audio problems. Uh, Emma for 79 Australia, uh, 79 99 Australian dollars. Thank you so much, Emma. You're a sweetheart. Thank you. Uh, Greg, Gregory Faro for $62.83. Thank you so much, Gregory. That's uh, These have been so generous. Thank you guys so much. Uh, Chris Gatton for $6.03. Uh, he says, any suggestions for eye fatigue? My eyes usually only feel good on sunny days. If there's such a thing as eye energy, mine feels drained most days. Um, so... When you say eye energy, like is it what about the what about the quality of vision? Like does it decline? Does it not decline? Um, I mean, if you experience a decrease in 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 subjective perception of brightness of color um, or, or or vision clarity, usually serotonin is involved. 
Um, one of the first things that he noticed when they approved the drug on Dancitrone, mm-hmm. which is a which is a, a serotonin antagonist that was supposed to work only in the gastrointestinal tract, it's a 5-HT3 receptor antagonist. One of the first things they noticed is that people started saying that that they became dramatically more sensitive to colors, to the brightness of colors, and they were capable of actually reading for hours at a time without getting eye strain. Um, so that's that's what that's I, what this. I'm so sorry. Is. I got to interrupt you. This is crazy. My computer is plugged in, and I'm at eight percent battery, and so I've been hearing like popping sounds, and I think that's because my computer is low battery. <laughs> Can you plug it in? <laughs> uh, give me. Keep going. Give me one second. Yeah, I mean that's that will that will be my uh, that will be my my first guess. Uh, another one is uh, basically it's shown that uh, high cortisol can actually fatigue the visionary system. The, the um, outlet the I, system. The outlet I was plugged into uh, is not functional. <laughs> no functional. Okay, okay, now we're good. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah, the second thing that that would be my suspicion is that there's uh, there's uh, elevated cortisol or or pituitary hormone elevation, especially ACTH. Um, I've noticed that when I'm really fatigued and start getting like pain behind my eyes, um, that's my, my vision quality declines. And I feel also like a, an eye strain. And I emailed Ray about four years ago, asking him about it. He said like, uh, you're probably overstressed and the pituitary gland is increasing in size. So it's pressing on the optic nerves and that's causing both like the feeling that, you know, you have like something is behind your eyes pressing on them. There's pressure and pain, right? This, this tension. And also the the what you describe as eye strain. So his recommendation at the time was pregnenolone. Uh, he said like about 100 milligrams of pregnenolone helped him with a very similar symptoms when he was really sick um, back in like the 70s. So yeah, but if you if you have on dancitron or cyproheptadine or thyroid or progesterone, any of these things should be able to help with both the cortisol and serotonin excess. My battery is like still declining even though it's it's actually charging now okay we better try to well, let's just wrap let's just this like up. power through this <laughs> <laughs> okay it's uh this is so weird okay um chris thank you so much uh michael says uh would medo- medonium meldonium be a good adjunct treatment to aspirin and niacin amide as a fao inhibitor for a cancer patient Absolutely. Um, but here's the thing. If you're taking aspirin, it's already doing about the same thing as meldonium does. It just requires higher dosages than meldonium does. Um, aspirin is also known to deplete the, the stores, the body stores of L-carotenine. Um, so if you're taking aspirin and taking niacinamide, and if you're seeing like, I mean, there are ways to measure. I mean, you can do blood tests for, for um, uh, non-esterified fatty acids in the blood. Like if aspirin is doing what it's supposed to do, these should drop. Um, that's that's a that's a pretty known effect of aspirin. In fact, they think this is the explanation of why aspirin is uh, is causing Ray's syndrome, not Ray as in Ray P, but like R E Y E, um, is because aspirin is apparently inhibiting the oxidation of fatty acids too much, which according to medicine is what's behind this viral episode in children mm-hmm. called Ray's syndrome. So yeah, sure you can you can add it. I don't think it will hurt. Um, but you know, if aspirin and niacinamide are doing their job, then it may be just a, you know, an, an extra, uh, you know, cause it's not cheap, maybe just an extra expense. And, and usually doctors frown upon using prescription drugs, even if they're not prescription drugs in the United States, but like if the doctor is already doing some other treatments, 
they you they may not frown upon niacinamide and aspirin that much. They may even allow them. But if you, if there is meldonium, then they will probably be heavily against it. I personally don't think it will hurt. Uh, it may even help depending on the aspirin dosage. If you don't take enough aspirin, if you're only taking like a gram or two, then meldonium will help. But if you take in the four to six grams, which Ray has uh, recommended before to people with cancer, and this dosage, by the way, is being backed by studies in terms of depleting carnitine, then I don't think meldonium will, will, has much to offer. Uh, Michael, for $10, thank you so much for that, Michael. Uh, Sean L. for five Canadian, $5 $10 Canadian. He did two Super Chats. Thank you so much, uh, Sean. Oh, his second one <laughs> says, any ideas on why high-dose aspirin, 1,200 milligrams, does not help reduce pain with migraines? I uh, usually have to revert to Advil. Um, so a couple of things. Aspirin is not that good as a as a pain reliever, right? I mean, the the, the dosage, the, the study that I just posted on migraines um, actually said that aspirin is very good at stopping like an impending attack before it happens. But the actual relief of migraines, I think the, that, that arm of the study was uh, the people were taking aspirin for, for chronically. It wasn't just a single dosage. It was, uh, it was like done for a few weeks. Um, but you can try aspirin with, uh, with vitamin B2 and riboflavin just so happens to be the, like the king of over-the-counter, off-label, uh, you know, uh, unapproved but known to be effective treatments for migraine. Um, and typically they use high dosages like uh, uh, 300 to 400 milligrams of vitamin B2, which is a pretty hefty dose. And I think Ray is against it if, you, if, you, if you're going to get exposed to bright light because it causes the, you know, too much of uh, oxidative stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, for most people, it's probably not a problem. I mean, most people are in a reductive stress versus oxidative. But uh, if you're already taking aspirin, I would try maybe 10 to 20 milligrams of vitamin B2 and see if that changes it because vitamin B2 by itself is very, very effective for migraines. It's, uh, I know quite a few people who go to their doctor and if they don't like their migraine drug, the doctor basically says, well, why don't you go and try this, you know, try vitamin B2 for a month and call me back and tell me if it works. And uh, even doctors are recommending it by now. And again, I'm not recommending high-dose aspirin or anything, but like there are three, four, five grams, you know, so 1,200 in the grand scheme of things for a chronic condition might not be uh, the highest dose. The uh, specific my- study was with twelve hundred. That's why he's probably taking twelve hundred. Oh, okay, my my fault. Just okay. this very recent one that we that we just discussed. Ah, uh, okay, okay, yeah. I have a paper. Up, I'm sure you've seen it, Georgie, but the Gomez paper where they talk about point three to three point six, and then f- uh, f- uh, four to and then four to six, all having kind of a different effect. Yep. Yep. Okay. I, my my computer is declining in battery, even though it's plugged in. I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we have two more. Uh, 199 uh, from a, a re- retracted. I think that's my buddy, John. Uh, thanks, John, for 199 And then Cardo Chav for 499 They say, Georgie, have you looked into developing a, a vitamin C supplement? Uh, welcome back to live streaming, Danny. I hope um, I hope the... I can't... Oh, I hope the, the move is going smoothly. Thank you so much, Cardo Chav. Um, so, yeah, I have, um, but a couple of things. I, wo- I work with liquid supplements, right? And in order to get like a decent dosage of vitamin C that will have therapeutic effect, you need a few grams, right? Mm-hmm. So I have, to, I have to sell a bottle that looks like this. <laughs> and I don't want to sell large bottles because they're expensive to ship. 
and they tend to get stopped by customs. I have international clients too. And I don't want to release a product that's only available to like a specific subset of people, right? So well, there's another reason too. Uh, I mean, you can get like probably like a pretty decent quality vitamin C. It's not ideal, but I've tried some of the powders that are out there. Even even the ones sold in vitamin shop and, um, and Whole Foods, um, they didn't give me intestinal irritation. But here's the thing. You can actually make your own oxidized vitamin C, which is what now is making huge waves in the cancer field. Um, there is a drug called Apatone. Uh, it was recently approved for advanced terminal prostate cancer, and it was it was shown to stop it. So it's just a combination of five grams of vitamin C and fifty milligrams of vitamin K3. And the like the role of vitamin K3 is to oxidize the vitamin C and convert it into the oxidized form known as dehydroascorbic acid. You can make your own dehydroascorbic acid at home when you buy the regular vitamin C. Um, dump as many grams as you can dissolve in a glass of water and just add like a little bit of methylene blue and then stir, right? It will immediately decolorize the methylene blue because the methylene blue will get reduced um, and the reduced version, the, the reduced state is, is colorless. But if you leave the glass open, right, uh, methylene blue will extract oxygen from the air and little by little, it will, it will turn back into its blue state. So there, this is actually much better than even apatone because you have the you will have the oxidized version of vitamin C and the oxidized version of methylene blue, both of which are very potent anti-cancer, anti-viral, um, and anti and, and antibacterial agents. Um, so it will be much better than apatone because apatone you do get the oxidized vitamin C, but then the vitamin K is reduced, and unlike methylene blue. Vitamin K cannot get reoxidized just under the um, just under the the effects of air. It has to be ingested, and then through the metabolic system, you have to basically get converted into its back into its oxidized state. What is it is about is it about a drop? It just like it's like a four percent. Okay, uh, Destiny. Anyways, because- that's why I don't release it. I mean, it's 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 hefty. It's it, it will be. Uh, very expensive to ship, and it will exclude a, a good amount of, of my clients from having it, and I don't want that. And last but not least, you can make your own version and get really, you can actually get the oxidized version. You do this thing with methylene blue, and you can drink it at home. Um, and methylene blue, through its oxidative powers, may even destroy oxidatively in an oxidative fashion some of these bad excipients that Ray keeps talking about. There's a study I posted about, about a year ago which showed that most of the bad excipients and even the endocrine disruptors can, can get destroyed and excreted by intense oxidative metabolism. And the mechanism of action was the generation of reactive oxygen species. Well, methylene blue can do that. So hopefully by combining methylene blue and even like a commercial quality level vitamin C powder, you can get pure vitamin C in its oxidized form um, for very cheap. Okay, uh, two two more questions. This one's from Destiny uh, Pincus for five dollars. Thank you so much, Destiny. They say any suggestions or insight or dry eye for uh, on dry eye and mouth that gets really bad comes and goes. I did test positive for high mycotoxins uh, in parentheses mold. Any info? Well, I mean, it's like a, any antifungal. Um, actually, methylene blue is a pretty good one. Uh, I wouldn't drop put the drops in my eyes, but I would try it orally. Um, other things that can lead to uh, to excessively dry eyes and dry skin uh, could be high cortisol or high estrogen. 
Um, I actually have uh, uh, female clients who started getting these symptoms in menopause. Um, and basically by taking progesterone orally, it wasn't even a very high dosage. It was like 15 to 20 milligrams, which is a physiological dose for a young person. They were managed to reverse this, this chronic uh, dry eye condition. Um, and uh, in some people some that emailed me about the same issue, turned out that they were taking too much cyproheptadine or another antihistamine with an anticholinergic effect. Benadryl is another one. And the side effect of that is makes gives like the symptoms of dry eyes and, and dry mouth. So if, if it's not that, then it's, it may be related to high estrogen, high cortisol, in which case progesterone should help. And for the mycotoxins, metolimol is probably the safest approach. Okay, last question. Uh, I have no idea what is up. I'm at 4%, so pretty scary. Uh, Nicholas Simpson, our buddy Nick, Nick uh, he says, he quotes, progesterone inhibits cholesterol synthesis, uh, dot, 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 another quote, results in accumulation of lanosterol. Uh, thoughts around relevance for anti-aging effects. But I'm sure he's quoting from like a specific paper. Um, and it's probably in vitro because I have other studies that show that actually progesterone increases the conversion of cholesterol into downstream steroids by activating the, the enzyme STAR, steroid acute regulatory protein, which is the rate limiting step in converting cholesterol into basically the, uh, it's, it's not the rate, but it's, it, it transports cholesterol into the cell and it's considered the rate limiting step in steroid synthesis. So progesterone is, is shown to greatly increase the activity of that enzyme. Uh, and this was done in vivo. So um, I would like to see an in vivo study and see if cholesterol actually leads to the buildup of, of lanosterol and, and inhibition of the synthesis of cholesterol. I'm not aware of, of any stu- in vivo studies like that. Yeah, we got to do a three-person show with both of you guys. Uh, but do you know what paper he's talking about? I haven't seen that one. I mean, I, 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 I've seen a few that talk about cholesterol in vitro, like inhibiting the synthesis of testosterone or like or DHEA or like a number, or like allopregnanolone. But then but then if you look at the in vivo situation, it doesn't pan out. It actually turns out that in most cases, progesterone has a has a stimulating downstream effect uh, on, on the positive, on the beneficial steroids. But I know it blocks cortisol. I know it blocks aldosterone. And we all know it blocks estrogen. I, he put the paper in, but I literally can't do anything with my computer. I'm too afraid it's going to crap out. I don't see anything. I mean, is there like a well, chat it's in it's in the chat in the YouTube uh, thing. Oh, YouTube. Okay. If right. any other situation, we would go into it. Um, okay, I think that we're gonna have to call it here. Um, just one last plug for my special guest. Somebody took offense to me calling you my special guest, Georgie. <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't. I don't All know right, why. Bro. They said that you have been on far too often to be a special guest, but I disagree. <laughs> I'm like Danny Rod's brother. It's like calling your brother a special guest. Well, well you're my Hungarian special guest brother, so I, I didn't. Bulgarian, Bulgarian. <laughs> same. I'm, I'm same, sorry. same difference. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm drunk. Okay, okay. Your Twitter, uh, Twitter.com/slash hate it, and then Idea Labs, uh, DC.com, and yeah. Anything else, Georgie? Any parting words? That's pretty much it. I mean, I think it'll be a pretty exciting 2020. Uh, I have several, few more studies planned. If all, if these, both of these uh, come out, uh, you know, if, if they're good, and if I can work with these groups, one of them is already kind of like, seems like we can work together. 
The other one, I'm still ambivalent. I don't like the fact they said we're not going to publish this. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> but uh, they agreed to do the study, and I, I did get rejected by about seven different other labs because they immediately asked, like, what are you planning to do? As soon as I said DHT and prostate cancer, they, they either disappeared, they ghosted me altogether, <laughs> or they said, like, our legal team is heavily against it, said, like, we're not going to touch this. So, wow. Uh, it should be an exciting 2020. Awesome. Guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you for all this, the extremely generous super chats. Sincerely appreciate it. Uh, thank you to my special uh, Bulgarian guest. So sorry, Georgie. Uh, brother. <laughs> brother, <laughs> Georgie, mother. Georgie Dinkov. Uh, and without you, I wouldn't even want to do these shows. So I, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time out of your actually very busy life to do these. And so from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Thank you to Steph, our moderator. Thank you to all the regulars that uh, make the, the chat so good. Um, and yeah, thank you guys so much. We will, um, Georgie will be back in two weeks, but I'm, I'm going to be trying to stack these and do one almost every week if possible. But we'll just, we'll, it, I'll do them as guests, as I can obtain guests to do those. So I'm, I'm sending out emails as much as possible. But again, thank you guys so much. Uh, take care and enjoy uh, this Mitch murder song. Let me...